Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Motivation is like a state. It's like a mood of our mind and body. It's always in flux. It can go from zero to ten. The reason I bring it up is because I find that I could get results with anybody as long as they have two qualities, that they are motivated and that they are teachable. In order to be able to change a habit, you need the motivation to want that, right? And I think there's certain things we could do psychologically to enhance our level of motivation. Like what? You may, actually you probably, have heard of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I call them choose-yourself currencies because they don't depend on any institutions to function, and they're simply exploding in price right now. Some have jumped as high as 3,000%, 21,000%, and even a rare 81,000%. If you're missing out on this boom, don't worry. You're not alone. Most people are not investing in crypto simply because they don't even know how to get started. So I decided to do something about that. I want to help listeners like you get started in this booming market. So I'm offering a free six-video series masterclass on cryptocurrencies all for free. I'll walk you step-by-step through the entire process. If you're interested in claiming this free masterclass, please go to altature.io. That's altature.io slash masterclass, where you'll find all of the details. What do Uber, Slack, and Groupon have in common? They all use Zendesk to build better customer relationships. With products like a smart knowledge base, live chat, phone support, and ticketing all connected in one place, Zendesk streamlines customer conversations and engagement. Zendesk products are easy to use and implement and built for the long haul. Schedule a demo today and see for yourself. Visit Zendesk.com slash James. That's Zendesk.com slash James. 
Jim Quick, super expert, brain performance coach, instructor, teacher, teacher to the stars, <laughs> teacher to top CEOs and entrepreneurs. Welcome to the podcast. James Altshire, thanks for having me. Thank you for everyone who's tuning in, as always. Yeah, no, this is this is your second time on the podcast. And I remember the first time you taught me how to have a better memory. I encourage people to listen to that older podcast because it was great. So thank you for that. No, no, you're welcome. I think everybody who's listening there's you know has memory issues. It's not a matter of a good or bad memory. It's just having a trained memory or an untrained memory. And but we're not taught, you know, back in school. Well, you know, it's so interesting because uh, on the one hand, I think school unfortunately is all about memorizing mm-hmm. facts rather than really understanding deeper concepts that could be useful later in life. But on the other hand, I find a typical question people ask each other is, oh, I just read this book and I don't really remember, remember. any of it. Right. The average person reading the average nonfiction book, what percentage of the book do you think they memorize? Right. So I think, um, and it's always different. Or remember, not memorize, but remember. Right. I mean, part of it is just not reading faster. It's actually understanding what you read, right? And so I think there's no, there's two parts to reading, right? There's reading speed and there's reading comprehension. And then if you have those and then work into your way to retention, it's important because there's no sense of somebody, everyone has the experience of reading a page in a book, get to the end and just forgetting what they just read. Right? Yeah. And they go back and they reread it and then they, they still forget what they read. And so I think memory is important in that Yes, school is a lot about memorizing facts and figures and formulas and foreign languages and all that stuff. I think the things that are worth remembering the most, and I'll get to, your, to answer your question, is remembering things like loved ones. I think it's important to have a good memory to remember those moments with the people we care about. Um, another one is life. Like I think if life is worth living, it's worth remembering. And But a lot of people don't remember what they had for breakfast today. right? And so just remembering the, the things that are important to them in life. And then the last thing besides love and life is the lessons. Um, I think a lot of people repeat the same mistakes. You know, they always say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. But maybe it's not insanity. Maybe that's just a, a poor memory. Maybe a lot of people don't. Um, they make the same mistakes over and over again because they forget the lessons in their life. Meaning, well, but, they, but let me ask you this: like, let's take a common mistake um, that people might make. Uh, like, let's say you go out. You, you date someone who's married, expecting them to leave their husband or wife uh, and marry you right. or, or have a lifelong relationship with you. That seems to be this stereotypical, common, it's so cliched a mistake that it happens in every single soap opera and most movies. Right, right. So, so, but, and yet people make that mistake over and over again, expecting a different result. And clearly they know they've made a mistake and, and all their friends say to them, that's a mistake. Right. Why do they keep doing it? It's interesting because, and that could be for, it could be in relationships or it could be people's health, right? They eat the same foods over and over again and they get, yeah. um, they, they wind into trouble there or, or it could be hiring, it could be in business. A lot of people make the same mistakes. They invest in the same kind of companies or they hire the same kind of people. Um, and keep them and and then don't don't manage them correctly. So those mistakes could be ubiquitous. Um, so I would say that some people in a relationship could repeat common problems as I, part of it could be memory because people don't feel they could intellectually remember it, but they don't feel the like the emotional memory of it, the pain that came with it because I find that human beings were not just logical, we're biological. 
and we're very biochemical, right? And so you think about the, if you think about it, that's all we are. We're right. basically a sack of chem, a sack of skin holding yeah, chemicals. It's a big chemical soup of of dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. I mean, it's just even when people do make mistakes and they have breakups, I mean, it rewires your your brain, right? Because the things that you obsess obsess about, you get you get very connected to, right? When People get rejected and stuff like that, and it's rewiring to our brains because. Well, well, and and I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I'm a little bit of an interrupter. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah we because know that. When something comes to me, I'll be curious. Yeah. Like some of that might be on purpose, as opposed to uh, forgetful, in the sense that uh, you, uh, you know, they get into a relationship. We're, we're talking about relationships, but it happens in a lot of cases. They get into a, a negative relationship for all the obvious reasons. It ends and. The pain is so great. You need your cortisol level goes up because we're talking about chemicals. And there's two ways to relieve the cortisol. One is to take responsibility and ownership yourself and say, "Okay, now I'm not going to do that again." And that's one way. Right. The other is to blame the other person and not yourself, and right. that also reduces the cortisol. So that's like a negative way of reducing the stress and the cortisol and the pain of the relationship. It's her fault or his fault, and so then. Your stress level automatically becomes re- reduced, and maybe that you maybe you start memorizing that pathway right. towards solving that particular stress. And that might not be the best empowering pathway for people to to take each time, but it gives them temporary like relief that you're talking about in terms of cortisol. Yeah, like when we're stressed, we have cortisol and we have adrenaline. We go into fight or flight mode, which is you know great if we need to be physical. It's not really good if we need to be analytical and study things and really understand things because it shuts down different parts of our brain. But I do believe that um, the human brain is is more of a deletion device than anything, right? You think about the billions of stimuli that's right here that we could pay attention to. We would go mad if we were, you know, consciously aware of all that. Right? I think that's why like with books as like a, a great example, like one time I asked Stephen Dubner who wrote Freakonomics, um, you know, cuz I read lots of books to research for this podcast all the time. And often after I interview somebody, I'll remember everything right up until the moment after the podcast is done. And then it's like almost as if like this eraser has like wiped out yeah. everything because I put so much energy in it, like burns yeah. out. But so I asked Stephen Dubner for who wrote Free Economics, what uh how what percentage of a book do you typically uh remember afterwards? And he said typically like one or two percent. Yeah. And which I thought was a very honest answer. I thought he would say 15%, but 1% or 2% I thought was a very right. honest answer. And I, I could tell you one of the memory principles that we talk about in our courses is this thing called the Zygarnik effect. And Zygarnik effect? Zygarnik. It's, how, how do you spell that? It's up, I'll send up, I'll write it out for right. you. But here's, here's the thing. So there's this um, psychologist in Europe and her last name is Zygarnik, Dr. Zygarnik, right? And they, she noticed that when she was at these cafes that the, the waiter or waitress would remember everyone's order until um, they would remember it completely until the at, at the actual order was delivered. And then after it was delivered, no recollection of what these people ate or drank. Huh. But it was full recollection. And the Zygarnik effect is basically this memory principle saying that um, the, the human mind needs um, doesn't like open loops. And if it starts something, it, it'll hang its attention on there until it's closed. And then it can move on. It's similar to what you're explaining um, with your personal experience. You know, studying up, preparing for a guest, and then after you do, it's kind of like people back in school, right? They maybe a lot of them didn't study. They um, they cram the night before, and you know they cram for like eight hours. They pull an all nighter, which is not good for your memory, obviously, because sleep is so important. But the next morning, people can't talk to you, right? You don't want anything to spill out at breakfast, and you can't wait to take the exam or the quiz because once you're done, what happens? It's just 
gone because there's a huge forgetting curve. Yeah, and it's not even as if um, like in the case of a podcast, it's not as even as if I'm cramming for the guests because every guest is on here because I really was fascinated right. by their books and wanted to talk to them and and so on. But I'll remember like everything then, even the acknowledgments, like why did you acknowledge this person or say this about this person? And then afterwards, because I put so much time preparing questions and thinking about it and thinking about that person, maybe there is a natural number, like find the one to 2% that's most mm-hmm. important. It's like you just said, there's there's billions of stimuli around right. us right now. You kind of only want to remember or exactly. notice the, the half a percent that's important. Exactly, because I think like knowing is half the battle, but I think the other half is just knowing the most important things. Like even when we take notes, I just did a podcast episode on this on like effective note taking, and I actually it's been shown that actually taking notes, handwriting them instead of typing them, is actually better for you. I agree with that completely. Yeah, it helps with their focus. It helps, and one of the reasons why, besides the tactical feel of it, is um is because that nobody could write as fast as somebody talks. So whereas you know somebody could type and transcribe something that you know in terms of word for word, but when you're forced to handwrite and it's a slower process, it forces you to be mentally acute to sort, to filter, to qualify information, to sort for what's most important to you. Also, you know that's such a valuable technique because you know handwriting versus the typing of ideas or because every morning I'll take a pad with me and write down ideas as opposed to type mm-hmm. my ten ideas of the day or whatever. But when I first started writing. What I would do is I had my absolute favorite author who I loved and wanted to emulate and I would just handwrite yeah. his story like word for word and think about, I could have just typed it, but I, it forced me more to think about why did he use that selection of words? Why did he put the period there? Why did he break paragraphs there? It just forces you to try to re, do another layer of reasoning on mm-hmm. top of what everyone is just sort of skimming through with their eyes. They they do that. They've done university studies where they have um, these students. They'll have a lecture where they're listening to it, and they'll have students type some half this class type it out, and the other half handwrite it. And the and the people who actually took the time to handwrite them did better in terms of uh, higher levels of understanding and higher levels of retention. That's and um, and so the same thing. Are, what about when it comes to um, reading books? Do you read off of digital devices or I do read right? off of uh, because. About a year and a half ago, um, we, we both have to catch up on so much stuff. Uh, but about a year and a half ago, I threw out about 100% of my belongings. And unless it fit in like one small bag, and so I only read on a Kindle. So I, I imagine you talked about this in prior episodes. What was the impetus for what, what, what sparked you want to do that? I want to be what I call, and I need a better word for this, so if you could help me come up with a better word. Uh, I wanted to be a choicist, meaning let's say every day we make on average... 10,000 choices, probably make more. I'm just making up a number, 10,000 choices. I wanted as large a percentage as possible to be choices that I care about. So I only wanted, I only want my day to be about choices I care about. So I care about what I'm reading. I care about the people I spend time with. You know, like what you said, love, life, lessons. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things I care about. So going through that process, what's a couple words that would describe how you feel now? Now that you have like more after the process is done, I feel it's made me. Um, everybody likes to say every day I wake up doing what I love, and that's sort of true. But you end up doing lots of things per day that you don't necessarily love. I would say it's brought me a lot closer to the truth of that statement. Every day I get to do what I love. And sometimes things are difficult, 
Uh, sometimes things are incredibly difficult. No matter who you are, someone can get sick, you could get sick, something bad could happen financially, all sorts of things could happen. But every day I get, I, I can say truthfully, I am getting closer and closer to doing what I love every moment. So I filter everything through like the brain, right? And so mentally, do you feel more clear or, or have more energy because you're not, you know, your mind's not going to other responsibilities? And- Absolutely. I hate wasting brain power on decisions that I don't care at all about. I just don't go anywhere or do anything I don't want to do. And that does, that sounds selfish, but you talk about it really, I really relate to what you said before, how we we could focus our memory and our learning right. around love, life, and lessons. So for instance, I will spend extra time with my children now just doing things that we all love doing. Right. And I spend time with my friends because I, I value friendship even more now than I did before. And I think it's hard after a certain age to value friendship in certain ways like we did as kids. Yeah. So so I feel now I'm able to better value friendship because I'm not wasting time doing all these other things. So suddenly everything I do, opportunities become much more creative and interesting for me because I'm only doing things I love. And so I'm answering your questions more than you're answering mine. No, 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 it's all good. The reason is because I'm super resonating with this love life lessons. And I think that's critically important. Well, I think also like, you know, we we make decisions based on what we value the most, like what's most important to us in our life. And I think, you know, when we're talking about your art, the human mind, when we're always deleting or we're distorting or we're generalizing, it's nice to know what's most important to us, especially in our relationships, the people that we're talking to on a regular basis and communicating, the people we care about. I would say that um, knowing this, because you were talking about having too many choices and we talked about in the last episode, we talked about 10 keys for unlocking your good memory, your superhero, your <laughs> that was superhero three years brain. ago, our last podcast. Right. And so one of them, you know, we talked about like one third of people's memory is predetermined by genetics and biology, but two thirds are is completely in our control. And we're talking about a good diet and getting rid of negative thoughts and exercising and brain supplements and positive peer group. But one of them was um, this thing called a clean environment, right? Just having a you know, getting rid of the clutter because it helps you focus. People know when they clean their office or they clean their desktop on their computer, they have a clarity of mind also. But you mentioned this word choice, that when you got rid of furniture and books and things like that, because um, you, were, you were concerned about all the decisions you had to make um, to be able to upkeep and hold everything together. And this is a real challenge. I think everyone who's listening to this, you know, we all suffer from this thing called decision fatigue. Right. This is the idea where research talks about saying we can only make a certain amount, a finite, a very limited amount of good decisions a day. And once we meet that quota, we're done. I strongly believe that. So for instance, just as an example of what you just said, I specifically in the mornings, I call them my maker hours. So that's when um the things that I truly care about and want to be creative about, like let's say writing or podcasting or um, whatever I'm doing creatively at that moment, I do it in the morning. And then in the afternoons, as much as I possibly can, that's what I call my manager hours. Because most most people uh, do, don't have any maker hours. Like they're just right. managing from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then their business day is over and they go home and they're exhausted and whatever. So I'll, let's say from 2 to 5 p.m., that's my manager hours. I'll mm-hmm. talk to... Uh, colleagues, partners, people I work with, because the phone calls are easy and just following up on decisions is easy. And, you know, most of that stuff is not creative. It's right. just like, okay, I got to move the needle on six different projects. It, that requires a phone call. Did you do this? Did you do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? 
the maker hours is when I'm writing, mm-hmm. is when I'm brainstorming and coming up with ideas, you know, just thinking of everything that I love doing. That that was this and that's prime time, right? If you could win that first hour, then you could win build positive momentum throughout the entire day, which is great because most people I did it um I just did a podcast episode on how like I spend the first hour of my day to jumpstart my brain. But one of the worst things people could do in the morning, which most people do, is they check their phone. And I, I still think when I'm working with elite mental performers, one of the things that people should not do if they want to really win that day is to check their phone. Because think about when you talk about the maker hours, when you're most creative, when you're most suggestible, you know, touching your phone first thing in the morning, you're in this alpha, theta, brainwave state. Um, where information is just going in unfiltered with our con- un- con- with our conscious mind. What do you mean by alpha theta state? So we we go through um, our brain cycles, different parts of our brain through different um, brainwave states. So right now, you and I are in beta state. That's where we're most awake and we're alert and conscious. Um, on the bottom of that is delta. Delta is the state we're in when we sleep. And so it basically you're measuring the frequency of of our of our brain. And when it slows down, it goes to delta where we sleep. In between that, below. Uh, beta, the waking state, is something called alpha, which is a relaxed state of awareness. That's the state we go into when we meditate. That's the state we go into when we watch television. And it's this relaxed state of awareness where information just goes in, uh, mostly unfiltered. It's like if you if you see somebody watching TV and they're watching their favorite show or sports event or whatever, and you try talking to them, but they're like in a trance and they don't hear you because they're they're in that alpha state. And oh, oh my gosh, Jim, there's so many things I want to unpack yeah. on everything you just said. I just want to just remind everybody listening, what I really want to do with Jim is figure out how he got to have such a dream job. Like, we're, we're hold on one second, yeah. Jim, because we're gonna. I, I want to get back to your your clean environment. I want right. to get back to what you just said about the alpha state. There's a couple of things that you just mm-hmm. said that I want to get back to, but I just want to remind people a little bit of who your some of your clients have been in the past or the present. Um, or maybe the future that you could talk about. Like you really are, uh, uh, people pay you a lot of money to give them this sort of advice and, and then some. So who, who have been some of your clients? Um, I mean, if, if people look at my Instagram, I mean, I work with a high percentage of the people that people see me um, on Instagram and such. Um, but I've done programs for Elon at SpaceX for his rockets. Elon his Musk. Rocket. Sure. Um, a lot of actors like Forrest Whitaker and Jim Carrey, uh, Will Smith. I'll help them speed read their scripts, help them be focused and present on set, help them to memorize their lines in a fraction of the of the time because there's you know obviously a lot of scripts and they have to stick it you know word to word, which is important. But high performers, um, you know, at our events we've had, we've had you know some amazing luminaries in the audience. Everyone from Quincy Jones to you know Matt Mullenweg who. You know, oh yeah, it, uh, Matt's been, Word, Matt's a great guy. He's been on the podcast. WordPress, WordPress creator. Sure. So um, I've get, seen pictures of you with Richard Branson. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to do a number of things with Virgin, and um, but just I mean, my my goal is it doesn't. I mean, those are great names. It's my my passion doesn't matter. It's just because I grew up with this brain injury, and I grew up, grew up with learning challenge. You know, a teacher at the age of nine, you know, said that I was the boy with the broken brain. You know, I was I had that label. They actually said that to you. Not to me. It was actually uh, it was because um, you had an injury. You had a bike injury, or something? I, I had a very bad injury when I was five years old, and I had learning disabilities. It took me an extra few years to learn how to read. I couldn't understand. I would I would have this imposter syndrome at this early age where I would pretend I would understand, but I really didn't understand a lot. And um, and so that was a big challenge growing up. But my thing is, I don't want people to suffer the way I suffered. And my whole thing is just you know 
one billion brains. I want the, I, no brain left behind. That's why I launched the podcast because I feel like our most valuable asset nowadays, it's like none of us are paid for our muscle power, right? We're paid for our mind power. It's not our brute strength, so it's our brain strength, right? In this knowledge economy, and knowledge is not only power, it's profit. And I don't it, just mean financial profit. It's No, I agree with you. I've, I actually, uh, I think it was the first chapter of one of my books, uh, uh, my book, The Choose Yourself Guide to Wealth. Uh, I say ideas are the currency of the 21st century. So it's, it's so knowledge is actual currency yeah. in, and, in today's economy. And I think it, that's the world we live in. It's like this knowledge divide, right? It's the people who know and people who don't know. You know certain things, and the information is out there, right? They're in their books, and it's online. But a lot of people don't have the ability or the skill set, the capabilities, to be able to filter through it, to be able to learn it, read it, absorb it, retain it. You know, perform. The reason why memory is so important is because I mean, you could everyone could say that, you know, they could go on Google and you know, and this these these facts are at their 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 fingertips. But at any given time, it's like we can only our life is a reflection of our decisions that we made to this point. Right, I mean that's pretty accurate, right? That our decisions we've made to this point are pretty much, you know, it's reflected in in, in our lifestyle and such. But There's we, kind of like a uh, a funny self help quote related to that, in the sense that if you're having a lot of problems and you start deciding things based on how you've always decided things, you have to sort of remind yourself, well, it's all of your decisions in the past that got us. you here. So that's why you almost need outside help to kind of get you out of here. And it, there's a there's a great book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. Oh yeah, that is a great book. That's yeah. like a, from the that's like a four decades old, yeah, right? Yeah, it's it's an older book, and it basically says that um, that there's this incredible pattern where most of the big advancements in industries, whether it's automotive or it's computers or you name it, fashion, usually comes from people outside the industry because it takes somebody from the outside to look in. Saying, "Hey guys, why aren't you doing it this way?" Well, look at ro- look at rocketry and space exploration. Um, you know, NASA is outsourcing to SpaceX. Elon Musk was, you know, he made PayPal. He was he didn't make he wasn't a rocket scientist. Right. And Jeff Bezos has Blue Origin going into space, and Richard Branson has Virgin Galactic. So you have a bookseller, uh, a PayPal guy, and a music magazine guy who are leading the next revolution into outer space. Right, people outside the industry, because if you're in the industry by definition, you're also, you've been trained the same way, you're, you have the same blind spots, the same scotomas, right, that people have. Scotoma? Scotoma, like a, like a blind, it's like a mental, in psychology, it's like a, a mental blind spot to, to not be able to put your focus in, in a certain area because we're not trained to do so. And that's why, actually, I think one of the best things for, for people to make better decisions is just... Um, is to change their perspective, and I and very applicable. So I think everyone listening to this has you know a decision they've been putting off that's important in their health or the relationships, where they're going to live, what they're going to do, who they're going to be with, whatever. But a lot of people going back to remembering lessons, how we started this conversation. A lot of people repeat the same um, issues. They go into another relationship, but they bring themselves with them. And what I'm thinking that's is part of it is their. Um, when they're in there, in that relationship, and they're doing that thing, they're seeing things from the same perspective, and that's why I think sometimes it's important to change place or change people you spend time with. They always say you are, you know, your environment. You are the the, the average of the five people you spend the most time with because it shapes your values, it shapes our beliefs. And I think if people want to make better decisions, like there's this um, there's this process called six thinking hats um, by uh, Edward de Bono, and basically. The summary of it is basically saying that if you need, if you have a problem that you need to solve, if you need to make a good, better, a better decision, one of the ways of doing it is to pretend that you're wearing six different hats. And so the idea here is, 
if you're constantly this, you know, as Einstein said, the same level of thinking that's created the problem won't solve the problem. The idea here is that if you're looking at a problem, imagine yourself, for example, putting on a white hat. And when you're wearing this imaginary white hat, you have to look at it from a scientific standpoint, a logical standpoint. And I'll give people a memory aid, like a white hat is kind of like a white scientist coat, right? So you have to look at it through the lens of logic and facts, this issue or this problem or this decision. But if you put on a red hat, the red hat is like red like the heart, is um, you have to just, you, you don't look at it logically, you just sort by emotion. How does this make you feel, right? Uh, a black hat, for example, is like, uh, um, is the critic, if you will. And so the black is kind of like a, a judge, like a, a judge robe, and would remind you that's the critic or the judge. So that's where you judge the idea. The O is the, um, the, the yellow hat is the optimistic point of view, like what could go right in this situation, what's positive about this, um, which is interesting way of looking at it, which is opposite of you know, like something that's more judgmental. Um, and the green, finally, the green is growth. And so the green is out of the box thinking. So if you're looking to solve this problem, how do you how do you look at it? What's a solution that we haven't even thought of? You know, green like growth, like um, like plants or grass and stuff. So what could be a new possible solution? And finally, the sixth hat is blue, and the blue is kind of the overseeing hat of all of them. It'll listen to your answers from the white and the red and the black and the yellow and the green and blue, kind of like the blue sky, which overlooks everything else. We'll listen to all the other answers, and then it will come up with the decision. After wow. I listen to everything from all these different points of view, I have never heard of this mental model before. Um, you ever see that book, A Hundred Decision Models? It like lists like all these different models. I can guarantee you, this model is not in that book. Right, and, and I've what, memorized that. And the reason models. why I like this is it's so simple, right? I mean, you, you let's, let's about, give an example though. Like, come up with an example where this works. Or where yeah, you've, um, where well, you've helped this people. is this is actually actually it'd be great for you. Like, if there's something is is there a decision that you're thinking about. Or a problem that you want to be able to solve yourself, and we can maybe try this out. Well, you know, the thing is, this is related to the choicism. Is that really? I've, I've, whether I realize it or not, I, I did a lot of this. Yeah. And so right now, I really am so much doing everything I love doing, and I don't say this to brag. There's always room to improve. In fact, everything I'm doing, I'm very stressed about because I want to improve on them. Mm -hmm. Like, so for instance, podcasting, I want to have the best possible podcast. Not that I feel competitive with anybody else. Not even that I feel competitive with myself. I just want to provide a better and better service. And I think it gives me pleasure. I, going back to your love, life, and lessons, right. I love doing it. So it gives me more and more pleasure as I get better. It makes my life better as I learn more right. because I feel like with podcasting, there's a lot of micro skills. Like there's like maybe most people don't realize this, but there's like probably 500 micro skills to being a good podcaster. You probably are are realizing this as you're doing your podcast, and so it improves my life. And just the lessons, there's actually then concrete lessons as I pursue what I love, as I do what makes my life better, and as I learn these lessons. So I feel like, in general, not that I have an easy life because I don't, because I because I'm only doing the things I want to do, it actually makes my life very difficult because yeah. it puts a lot of pressure on me to improve at them. But I don't really have the problem of making uh, a decision because right. I usually know at some point when I'm ready for the next 
thing. I like that too. And I like that you do the difficult things because there's that whole saying that says that if you just do the easy things in life, then life is hard. Oh, oh I'll give you an example of that. So I felt so so I've been trying, as many of my listeners know, I've been trying to do um stand-up comedy for the past, you know, four or five months now, really for a year and a half, but but real more intensely for the past four or five months. And so I felt like A, I need to be a little I've always been fearless in front of a public speaking crowd, but I wanted to be a little more fearless in front of a potentially enemy crowd. And I also wanted to be tighter on my one-liners. And so to overcome this fear uh, and to get tighter on the one-liners, I went on a subway and going from 42nd Street down to the Brooklyn Bridge and from the Brooklyn Bridge up to 42nd Street, each car, each stop, I went into a new car and would do stand-up comedy really and just to focus on one-liners and so it forced me to write down one-liners which is very difficult to do like a, a, a joke in just like 10 words and then oh my god it was so scary to just talk in front of an audience who really does not want you to talk right <laughs> like they do not want you to open your mouth and uh so so yeah i i challenged myself on everything and i try to figure Where's the line where I can no longer challenge myself, and then how can I go a tiny bit past that line? That's, that's and that's how I came up with that idea. I mean, have you done like improv also? Improv no, no, classes? I actually specifically don't like improv. Really? Yeah, it gets uh, recommended to me a bunch being just a public speaker. Yeah, no, I think I think improv is great. I like watching it. Uh, like uh, you know, Saturday Night Live is all improv, but uh, I don't. I like doing things in my brain. Like I like doing things on my own. <laughs> I love so, it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what we're talking about here for just everyone who's who's listening is just we live in an age right now where there's these. I always talk about superheroes and superpowers, and I think that there's some supervillains, modern day supervillains that generations ago didn't have. They weren't here. What we're talking about in this digital world, we have digital overload, right? Where we feel like there's too much information, too little time, right? The amount of information is d- doubling at dizzying speeds. I think most people who are listening to this could appreciate. It's you know they have things they need to learn, but it feels like it's taking a sip of water out of a fire hose, right? With the amount and half life of information is just you know it's so quick. People who are graduating school, a lot of the stuff that they're learning is is not even accurate, um, and so there's this digital overload and overwhelm, which creates information fatigue. They call it information fatigue syndrome, right? Higher blood pressure, compression of leisure time, more sleeplessness. Can I, you know, can I ask you about that real quickly? Yeah. It's not just, I feel like it's not just digital overload. And this is related to you suggesting earlier in the first hour, don't check your phone. I feel like it's not only like there's so much information that happens every morning. It's also, there's a lot of annoying information. Like, oh my God, he went to uh, Greece on vacation and, and they're all together. Why didn't they invite me? Like there's all this, like you see all these things your friends are doing because they, because they only are giving you a filtered version of the information about their life. Right. And you're like, Oh, I didn't do that. And so, uh, it's not just digital overload. It's like digital, like you suck, right? (laughs) you know, and everyone else is great. And that's like forced down your throat. And we know, and we've heard these terms, right? Like Facebook depression and, um, these things where everyone's seeing, uh, you know, the most amazing highlight reel of everyone's life as opposed to what's, what's going on, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So people get depressed because there's this huge FOMO and that people are missing out and they're not good enough. And fundamentally, I think one of the big human, like, the fears that we have is that we're not good enough, right? We're not good enough, so we're not going to be loved. And if we're not going to be loved, we're not going to 
you know, survive because you know we needed to as you know to be loved by our parents. Otherwise, ah, we had no protection. And that that's so interesting. So you're saying kind of this this Facebook depression or, or or viewing this highlight reel of everyone else's life. It's almost, and I'm going to use the the bag of chemicals analogy again. It's almost pushing down your oxytocin, which is the neurochemical which tells you where you are in in social acceptance of the tribe. So right. when you see that all the tribe is having fun, but hey, I didn't have fun last night. Right. You're feeling like that the tribe is kind of kicking you, you know, pushing you towards the fringe where the lion is going to potentially eat you first. Right. I mean, it's tough because we we learn through contrast and comparison through things. And so when we when we see people succeeding or having it it puts us in a place where we feel like we might not measure up. And I think that ultimately that's one of the deepest fears we have whether it's you know the root cause of you know, challenges where people feel vulnerable public speaking. Um, I don't know how you mm. have you always been natural on stage and in media. No, uh, but but here's here's where it, I have a up until the one second before I'm on stage, I'm uh, incredibly terrified. So really? I will even say to the conference organizer, um, "I'm sorry, I'm leaving. I'm too scared." And but once the mic is in my hand and I'm looking at the audience and I start, then it's like I'm. I it's somehow I don't know what happens. It's like I get this boost of energy and I'm like a different person and I'm fearless. It, it's a, and I know beforehand that's probably going to happen, but I'm still scared still- to death. I am scared all the time. Uh, aren't I scared all the time? So I'm scared all the time. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that because when I grew up with this, this brain injury and such, I would actually, if a teacher in high school asked me to do and talk about my book report in front of class, I would lie and say I didn't do it, and I would throw it out on the way out huh. because I was so terrified, you know, of public speaking. And it's interesting because my two biggest challenges growing up were learning and public speaking. And you know, you could say the universe has a weird sense of humor because that's what I do pretty much every week. But I, I find that it's funny. I find that with a lot of my guests that the things. They were specifically challenged with, you know, it's it, the overcoming those challenges make them an expert. So, for instance, um, you know, I wrote a book called The Power of No. Sure. So, why it's important to be able to say no in your life. I didn't write it because I was such a great expert at saying no. I wrote it because I'm really non confrontational and horrible at saying no. Right. So, the exploration of that led to the book. And it's interesting to see when a struggle becomes, could turn into a strength. Like like my biggest mess growing up was my learning disabilities, and now my mess has become my message. Well, well, that, oh, I love that mess goes to message. But I want I want to um, repeat your story, which we we talked about before, which is you were in in college, and and I guess it was your roommate's dad asked you to write down kind of your the ten things you were interested right. in, and you might have felt unconfident about them. And he said, you know, Jim, you're this close, and he he put his fingers close together. You're this close from achieving all of them, right. and and that is a very choicest philosophy, also because I feel it like is. you then be started doing the things you love doing that would improve your life, and you started looking for the lessons that would help you with memory and brain mm. performance, and, and and so on. Yeah, and it's it's about responsibility, right? Because I feel like the most successful, productive, fulfilled people they feel like the locus of control is coming from the inside, that they are at cause. That life is uh, not happening to them, but it's happening them, you know, more for them in in their favor. So, so, so it, it's the same thing we discussed earlier of like blaming circumstances to reduce stress, as opposed to doing something to reduce stress. So, what did you do when this guy said that to you? Right. 
what did you start doing that that anybody can start doing in some analogy or metaphor yeah, or whatever? What did you start doing to kind of make build the life and career that you have now? Right. So when I was 18 years old and I met this gentleman, I was ready to quit my freshman year of school and because I was it was just not for me. I felt like that it was I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't getting the grades and um and I was just learning challenge. And it's funny because when you argue for your limitations, you get to keep them, right? And I was always arguing, saying I'm not smart enough, I'm not good. It's this script that we have, this story that keeps us from what we, um, you know, should what we desire and what we deserve. And so I'm fighting for my limitations with him, and he's saying, "Well, why are you in school? What do you want to do? Be, have, share?" And I start coming up with things, and he makes me write them down like a bucket list. And when he looks at it, as you said, he says, "Jim, you're this close to everything on that list," and he spreads his index fingers about a foot apart. And he, I was like, no way, give me 10 lifetimes, I'm not going to crack that list. And then he puts his two fingers um, on the side of my, um, my, my head, inside of my temple, meaning it's the, my brain inside there that's going to be the key. And he takes me into a room of his home that I've never seen before. It's wall to wall, ceiling the floor, covered in books. And remember, at this time, I'm learning challenge. I never read a book cover to cover. I mean, it'd be equivalent of somebody who's phobic about snakes walking into a room full of snakes. I mean, that's how I felt in that library, right? And he, what makes it worse, he started grabbing snakes from the shelves and handing them to me. And I started looking at these titles and the, these biographies of men and women in history and some very early personal growth books, books that you and I have read, like Thinking We're Rich, the Power of Positive Thinking, Psycho-Cybernetics, How to Win Friends and Influence People, like all the classics, right? Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill and everyone. And so um, he says, Jim, I want you to read one book a week. And I'm like, are you crazy? I have all the schoolwork. I just told you I have midterms. I can't even keep up with what I already have. And he said, Jim, don't let school get in the way of your education, right? Famous Mark Twain quote. But I didn't know that because this was 25 years ago. And I'm like, that's a great quote and saying, but I still can't read one book a week. And then very smart man, he takes out my bucket list, which he still has, and he starts reading every single one of my dreams out loud. Um, and something about the stranger is obviously very successful hearing my dreams and my fantasies, my goals in somebody else's voice in the universe mess with my heart, my mind, something fierce. And honestly, James, a lot of things on that list were things I wanted to do for my family that they could never afford to do for themselves. And, um, and with that extra leverage, and we know the power of drive and having reasons and you know, start with why and such. With those whys, it, I, I agree to read one book a week on top of my schoolwork. So now I'm sitting at school and I have a pile of books you know, I have to read for school and then a pile of books that I want to read that I promised. And I want to fulfill my commitments and I can't keep up. And that's where it goes downhill. You know, I don't eat, I don't sleep, I don't work out, I don't spend time with friends, family, I just live in the library. And that's where I had another accident. I ended up passing out in the library, I fell down a flight of stairs, I hit my head again, and I woke up two days later in the hospital. And at this point, I mean, I'm, I've lost so much weight because I wasn't eating. Were you depressed? Yeah, I was. I was I was very depressed. I was in a very dark place. It's not, a, even when I'm talking about it, you know, I get a little, you know, choked up. But I was, I was down to 117 pounds. I thought I died. And you know that would, it's just it was a bad place. And when I woke up, another part of me woke up saying there has to be a better way. What I'm doing is not working for me. And that's when I started studying like those books and studying the brain. I want to understand this thing where I want to understand how my brain works so I can work my brain. And I started studying adult learning theory. I started. I found a book like I'm not saying it's the law of attraction, but I just I, I visited one of my friends on campus and on the book of his you know his roommates like. You know, bed was like a book on speed reading. I've never even heard of speed reading before. And I started studying that and the old school memory training and everything. And then about 60 days, two months into it, a light switch just popped on and I started to understand things for the first time. I started to have better focus. 
retention. I started to um, do better in school and with my grades improving, my life improved. Why, why do you think, why, what is that light switch? Is it something that happens naturally when you put six months of thought and, you know, kind of responsible thought into something yeah. and reading and so on? I mean, I think when people do deep immersion, I mean, people, we, we can learn things lots of different ways. There's a way of, you know, called space repetition where we break things down into intervals, like, you know, kind of like working out where we do some Nautilus training here. Like we, we spread things out um, and consolidate from short-term to long-term memory. But another way of learning is through just deep immersion, right? Where you have no distractions. You're putting yourself in an environment where you're feeding your mind this information for eight plus hours. And that's what I was doing. Um, I remember actually, I, mean, I remember talked about this, but I, I remember the, the moment where I actually understood there was a difference. Because sometimes you don't see your progress because you're in it. Kind of like you know, with your kids, you look at your kids and they they you don't know if they've grown a lot, but with friends who haven't seen them for six months or a year, they see the big growth because it's contrast. Um, and so the time where I realized I had these superpowers was about sixty days into it. I was remember I was in a lecture center, a few hundred people there, and back then there were no computers. There was just like you know, remember those like um, overhead projectors where you'd yeah, write yeah. with a, like one of those pens and stuff. Um, they put something on the overhead projector on the screen in the lecture center, and you know it was all these words and you know paragraphs, and um, and then I, I started laughing out loud. And I'm I'm very shy in class, right? I'm if I, I if anything, the superpower I had back in school was invisibility because I didn't want to be noticed. I didn't want to be heard. I mean, deep down, I, I think all of us want to be heard and seen, but I really didn't want that um, any attention or spotlight on me. But I just start I started laughing out loud. I didn't even realize I was doing it because I was reading. You know, I read what they put on the screen. But I, and then everyone looked at me, and I felt very awkward. And then about 15 seconds later, everyone else started to laugh, and I realized that I read what was on the screen really quickly, right? Because of these newfound powers, and, um, and that's where I realized like there was a fundamental difference. I don't even think it's like reading at five, six, eight hundred words a minute, where the average person reads about two hundred words a minute is speed reading. I feel like it's just regular reading. We're just not taught these skills. I feel like we live in, and we had this conversation last time. We live in this age of when we're talking about Elon Musk, right? We're talking about autonomous electric cars and spaceships that are going to Mars, but our vehicle of choice when it comes to learning is like a horse and buggy. It, it hasn't changed a whole lot as much, much as the world has changed. And I feel like if, if someone's listening to this, they feel like these three villains, is in, it, the digital overload, which is like too much information, and it, it's not even filtered, right? There's, there's more information being created you know, every day with blogs and podcasts and you know, YouTube and, and everything Trump's else. Trump's tweets. Right, exactly. And I, and I don't even say that as a joke. That's actual competition for... Right. Within, with, with other information. And, and going back to our original conversation about not, having, not checking your phone the first hour of the day, when you're in that alpha theta state, when you're in that relaxed state of awareness, you're fully impressionable and you're going through your phone the very first thing when you're that impressionable and suggestible and you're looking at comments because you're getting these dopamine fixes, right? From every time you get a like, a share, a comment, and you're, 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 literally, you're frying, metaphorically, you're frying your, your brain, you're, 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 um, you're fatiguing it. Remember we are talking about like choice fatigue and, and decision fatigue? We're using all those choices and those decisions to be able to scroll and look at cats and doing all these, you know, these memes and everything. And we wonder why we're tired. And going back to this idea of decision fatigue, the reason why, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Tony Shea, that you know, these people they wear the same sweatshirt or, or Tony always wears the same Zappos T-shirt, you know, being CEO of Zappos, you know, most of the time is they that you 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 ask them and they say that they do it because they don't want to waste one of their good decisions on what am I going to wear today, hmm. right? They want to systemize everything. And turn everything to processes, so they don't have to, you know, so they can focus on the things that matter the most to them. And so that's that's one of the challenges: digital overload. But the other two, really quickly, are digital distraction, 
right? Because every time you, the other challenge with opening your phone, so there's two challenges with checking your phone the first hour of the day. Number one, it trains you um, to be distracted, right? Um, because you're looking at all the different things. And, and also, the other problem is it's training you to be reactive, meaning that when you're looking at text messages and emails and all these things um, from people wanting something from you, right, or fires that you need to put out, then you're training yourself not only to be distracted, but you're training yourself to be reactive. Um, and that's you're never going to have, especially the entrepreneurs that, are, that need to take the invisible, make it visible, t- turn their vision into reality and such like that, is then you're not going to have a quality of life if you're just reacting to all the things of you know everyone else's agenda that they have for you. And so that's why picking up the phone in that state is really bad to do. Rather than sitting down, doing what you're doing, being a maker, right? Planning the three things that you need to accomplish personally and professionally and keeping your eye on the prize. The third obstacle besides digital overload and digital distraction is digital dementia. And digital dementia is this new term used in, in healthcare, basically saying that our brains, like we're getting more and more forgetful. Everyone's feeling like senior moments are coming early, even if they're, you know, in their twenties or thirties. Why is this happening? And part of it is they're saying doctors are saying it's because we're relying so much on our smart devices and it keeps our to-dos, it keeps our calendars, it does simple math for us, it remembers all the phone numbers, all things that are convenient. Like nobody wants to memorize hundreds of phone numbers, right? Um, but we've lost the ability to do so. And that creates a lot of challenges, and they call it digital dementia, where your your mind is like a muscle, it grows stronger with use. But if do, do you think that's true? Do you think that because someone's outsourced their contacts to a phone list, they're they're not actually just saying, okay, now my mind can do other things? No. That are more- and I think that like the right, so nature abhors a vacuum. So if you have this extra free time that you're saving from reading faster or anything an hour or two a day, then you're always going to fill it with something else. I would hope that that um, so there's two parts to it. I think that it's not black and white. I lie, rely personally on my smart devices because I don't want to memorize everything. It's convenient. But I also don't want to lose the ability to if I need to. And so the challenge becomes like, so people, if you, if, if you lost half of your memories, like if you forgot half the people that you know, if you forgot half the words, like the understanding of what those words meant, if you forget, you'd be, you'd be at a disadvantage. Obviously, right? Right. And so the same could be said if you could potentially double your capacity to be able to remember these things, you'd be twice as effective in these ways also. You know, having information at your mental fingertips, especially in this age where, you know, we're paid for our expertise, for our knowledge bank, and our ability to make good decisions. We can only make good decisions based on the information that we remember at any given time. But if we lost that information, we're not very productive and our performance, you know, obviously hurts. The other thing I would say for digital distraction is we live in a world where people are just they're addicted to this to being busy. They start bragging that they're busy all the time. They had they wear it as a badge of honor, which is a challenge because if you are getting significance or you're meeting some of these values by by being busy. Because basically when someone's saying that they're busy, um, which is something we all have a habit of saying, is just basically what we're saying is we're we're important. Like we're so important, we have lots to do, right? And if, if people are getting rewarded through that, you know, some kind of secondary gain out of it, the challenge is they start unconsciously designing their life to be busy all the time. So they could feel that you know that importance, and that we know busyness is not necessarily the answer. You know, right? You know, the whole conversation we're having in the first half of this conversation was about putting first things first. Right? You're focusing on life, love, and lessons—the things that we value most. We're putting the first. We're majoring in the major things in life. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Zendesk builds software to help businesses build better customer relationships with products like a smart knowledge base, live chat, phone support, and ticketing all connected in one place. Zendesk 
streamlines customer conversations. In Zendesk, every channel you'd need is baked right in, all tied to the same analytics and reporting. Turns out only 25% of customers choose the phone as the first channel for reaching customer service. That means that 75% would rather reach out via chat, email, social media, or help themselves in your knowledge base. Best of all, your agents can seamlessly switch between channels without having to end the conversation. And don't worry, more channels doesn't mean an unmanageable stream of tickets. Companies using Zendesk solve 39% of their customer support questions on the first response. And Zendesk likes to keep it sweet with its own customers too, with a 95% customer satisfaction score to prove it. For your in-laws, you're on your own. But for your customers, try Zendesk. Schedule a demo today and see for yourself. Visit Zendesk.com slash James. That's Zendesk.com slash James. Let's say I was just focused on money, which I was for many, many years. And I was making it, I was losing it, I was making it, I was losing it. I never felt good like up in my chest, meaning I never loved what I was doing. I always thought like, I just always felt this stress in my gut and I would even get like sick in my stomach because I was just always thinking about money and it wasn't something I necessarily, and I was doing things that I didn't necessarily love doing. And it's only like in the past, let's say seven years, it started moving up what my activities during the day started moving up my how I felt in my body. So now I can tell when something's a good decision if I feel it up here in my chest, mm-hmm. if, I, if I love it. You know, whether I'm good or bad at it, if I love it, you know, then I can say, oh, okay, this is something I want to get a lesson from, or this is something I want to improve my life with because it's me, it makes me feel better up here. And that's much more pleasant than the worry I always had in my stomach. It's very biological yeah. for me, decision making. Yeah. One, one of the things that, you know, there's always, there's always some kind of gift that comes out of some of these challenges. And one of the themes for you and I were talking about is how struggles become strengths, that through challenge comes a level of change, right? How, the mess becomes some kind of new message for for people. Um, we were talking before we got in the studio about um, my sleep issues, and so I don't talk about this publicly ever. But I think it could help maybe a couple people who are listening to this. So I've, I've suffered from sleep apnea for the past five years, very very severe. Because as you get older, it gets worse and worse. And sleep apnea is this breathing disorder where you don't get enough oxygen when you sleep, so you wake up suffocating. And um, and I use a CPAP breathing, you know, device um, to help me get air, and you know, dental devices that put my jaw forward and helps me to be able to breathe a little bit easier. But nothing's really hacked it, right? And so, well, what, do you think it's related to the? Um, I mean, and I've seen photos of you like in the hospital bed, right. like really looking like a, a yeah. wreck through this. Do you think it's related to those early brain injuries? No, the apnea is actually a structural issue. It's actually because my my tonsils were just very large, and you know, this so it's kind of this soft palate. Um, and uvula in the back of my throat prevented oxygen to go through it. And usually it's the people who usually suffer from it. And I recommend anyone who has who wakes up still fatigued to get a sleep study done. You could do it at your local, your doctor could do it and, and order it for everybody. But I think more people suffer from this than they realize. And so what it is, is um, it's usually because somebody's overweight and they have, carry a lot of um, um, extra, extra weight around their neck and it prevents them from being able to get to, to breathe. Um, but for me, it was, it was purely genetic. Um, what made it, and so I had, I've had surgery and everything. I was hospitalized a number of times where I was, okay, so I was getting about 90 minutes to two hours a night for five years combined. And, and, and obviously, and, and this has come up on the podcast a lot, essentially most people need 
eight hours. Right. I mean, no, so, not even on average. You just need eight hours you need, every day. You need more. I mean, I don't know what the range is, but certainly more than a couple hours of sleep. And because I, you know, because the sleep is, people think that, um, like when I ask people how do they build muscles, they like, oh, I, I go to the gym, I exercise. But in actuality, that's not where you're building the muscle. That's where you're tearing, literally tearing the muscle down. When you're building it is when you rest. And a lot of that is, is sleep is so important. It's like one of the best life hacks there is, performance hacks, because when you don't sleep, you're, you know, your ability to make good decisions, your, your memory, your focus, everything is compromised the next day, right? Um, and so that's a big challenge. And so for me, I never got enough sleep because I couldn't breathe. I would stop breathing 200 plus times a night. Each mm-hmm. time was more than 10 seconds. So I'd wake up, the equivalent of this sleep doctor was saying, it's like, hey, so it's like somebody's coming in 200 times a night and suffocating you with a pillow. You know, and so it's no wonder you're waking up. Did you realize this was an issue, or did you think everybody just this is just how no, everybody slept? No, I've always realized I've never slept really well. But you know, as as we get older, it just it gets worse progressively. Sleep apnea does. Um, it, my challenge, my, the reason I bring this up though, is the gift because my, my what I've learned to do is train myself when I go through struggle. I'm trying to think what's the gift in this, right? Because to be able to. People don't realize you. You're you're talking about all the struggles that people have and how people could grow from it, and that's actually a powerful word because we've all heard of post traumatic stress right um, disorder, and people don't realize that there's also this thing called post traumatic growth. That going mm-hmm. through trauma, going through adversity, going through extreme difficulty, the most difficult times of your life, there's a number of people, percentage of people that come through it, and they're actually thankful for that, even though that. Um, you know, they wouldn't wish it on anybody that they cared about or anybody because what they had to go through in terms of suffering, they got a certain level of meaning from that experience. They got a certain level of commitment. They got a certain level of newfound strength from it. And it changed everything. Like for me, I struggled for a decade and a half with my learning challenges, but I wouldn't trade that for anything because it put me on this path. Right. And so I would say, what's the gift out of me not be able to sleep for five years and travel to Dubai and Hong Kong and do these? mental feats, memorize 100 people's names from stage when, I got, when I'm got really, really tired, I would say part of it is certainly is willpower because you know I focus on gratitude. I get very scared going on stage still because I've never, you know, it's more my nature. I'm more introverted, but I focus on, you know, a couple people I feel like I can help in the audience and it puts my focus off of myself. I think that's important. And I focus on giving, not to be able to get, but giving because it's who we are. Um, and I would say that the gift out of not sleeping is two things. Um, number Number one is... I would say that um, it's forced me to double down on the things that I teach because I could be as efficient and effective as I am being, you know, getting done what a lot of people, it would take three or four people to do because I, I do what I teach, right, in terms of learning and performance and all these brain hacks and stuff. But number two, besides doubling down on my capabilities and unique abilities, which I think everybody has, is, um, is I've gotten really good at filtering exactly what you're saying in terms of not overcommitting, saying no mm-hmm. more often because... You know, it's this whole idea where I feel like a lot of stress that we, we're carrying is unconscious because we're overcommitting to so many different things. We have so many projects. We're trying to do so many things parallel, and we know that multitasking is a myth. That we can't. That it's not. That's not even accurate. That people who feel like they're multitasking. I'm not talking about walking and, and thinking and being on the phone. I'm talking about doing two cognitive activities or more at once, where you're switching. And that's what exactly what it is. The actual term for multitasking, more accurate, is task switching. Right, you're going from task to task, but every time you switch, your researchers are saying you're you're losing about five to twenty minutes uh, because it takes that much time to regain your focus, regain your flow, if you will. Also, those people are multitasking. Not only is it wasting time, so their performance goes, their productivity goes down, but also they're making more errors. 
you know, which is a big challenge also. But we live in this world where people are overcommitting and they have all these windows open on their computer metaphorically, even that even if it's minimized, it's still taking up space. And I'm saying that when I was sleeping two hours a night, now my, it's up now to three or four hours now. It's because I'm just working with some, with some specialists. But I would say that it forced me to really analyze the things that I want to. And, you know, in the spirit of, you know, the one thing or essentialism, it's everything is hell, hell yes or it's hell no. And so, like right now, James, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. There's nowhere I'd rather be with because. Well, I am certainly glad about that. <laughs> because this is because it was like automatic yes. Because and that's how I filter things. You remember you're saying in your chest, you're like you do the things that you love, yeah. even if they're more difficult, they're more fulfilling for you. Um, and I would say that it's good because you want to go through difficulty. Because anyone who's been give, given everything and they have been, if they have had an easy life, they don't develop pride and they don't develop strength. Right, and I feel like over the past five years, it's forced me to really double down again on my capabilities, the things that I teach about speed reading, memory, just things that keep me productive, and also it's forced me to say no eighty percent of the time, um, and only say yes to the things that really light me up. And so, I think so. That's so, in terms people. of like making those decisions, do you go back? Let, let's go back to the um, the hats. So, the white hat, red hat, black, yellow, green, blue. Did you use? Let, let Let's put it in that context. So, you know. Uh, white hat, you know, yeah. when, when you're making a decision, what's an example decision you've made where you've used this mental model? Yeah, I mean, so this would be really good. So I had surgery. Um, I haven't talked about this, but uh, one of the things I was, I was, I was being hospitalized um, every single year because I would go X amount of days without sleep mm. and it got very, very bad and I would have to be sedated and such. And I wanted to get the surgery done. Um, they call it a U triple P, um, where it's, it's pretty, it's pretty severe. You know, it's not like having your tonsils out when you're a kid. It's, as you're, as adults, it's a lot more. Um, a lot more pain associated to it, and the challenge is, I found out that eighty percent of the time it's uh, it's a fail failure, um, and so I'm like, why is this so? Why is everybody having the surgery and and four to five times it doesn't work, right? Because it's a very painful process, very costly process, and a number of my celebrity clients had gone through it and just they still hasn't fixed the problem with their breathing, and so I use the six hats as an example. I won't go through it completely, but when I'm wearing the white hat, I was going through it and looking at it analytically. Like looking at the data, looking at the research, why is it just four out of five? Um, and also, part of it is just you know the red hat. I was thinking, how do I feel about this? You know what I mean? Like, what's the emotional attachment? Because I I don't like being, you know, nobody wants to be under anesthesia and like out and everything else. Actually, like that. I like being under anesthesia, oh, yeah? but other than that, but yeah. <laughs> it's so pleasant. They say countdown to and like, ten, oh. and then by seven you're gone, and then you are groggy when you wake up, and yeah. it's like this new world. Anyway, I, no, I mean, it's the, like this science fiction yeah. aspect of anesthesia that and I, I like. And I started going through it. I, I looked at it through the critical standpoint, you know, wearing the black hat, saying what could go wrong here and everything, and I started looking at the yellow and what could go right. And then when I looked at um, the one that actually made a difference was the green one. Um, the green one is what other op- what other options do I have? And I started to say like I started to ask around, and um, and I happened to be talking. Um, I just did a podcast on effective listening skills, and I would love to talk to you about like how you become such a great listener. But I was having um, breakfast with um, with Larry King, and I was asking him these questions, and I was losing my voice, um, and I was very concerned. And he recommended this doctor in um, in, La- in Los Angeles, and which led to another conversation with the head of throat at UCLA. Anyway, short. Sorry, I was like, I got a meeting with this guy and I was looking at green. I was like, are there any other option besides this surgery? And she's like, yes, what we do here is we actually don't do the surgery unless it's actually necessary. And what we do that other doctors don't is we actually sedate you with anesthesia and then put a, a scope up your nose, down your throat to actually see where the obstruction is. Because lots of times it's actually the tongue that's 
that's keeping that falls in the back of your throat that makes you snore or can't or you can't breathe and that's why you know the apnea is there and obviously they're not doing surgery on your tongue but most are not effective because they're taking out parts of your your your, you know, your your oral cavity that doesn't need to be taken out. Why doesn't everybody do that? That seems yeah. like a, kind so, of an so obvious. He, thing. So he put me to sleep, and then I said he gave him the specific instructions that if you see that that my tonsils are actually the presenting issue, then then do sir, you know, take them out, and that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And it led to this new solution where I felt really good about it, and it's made a difference. It's you know, instead of getting ninety minutes, I'm getting three or four hours still, mm-hmm. and I'm still building it up, and I'm in the middle of the process. But I think, like again, our our lifestyle, our life, our happiness is a reflection of our decisions. But nobody teaches us these things. School is a great place to learn what to learn: math, history, science, Spanish. You know, important you know subjects, but zero on how to learn, how to listen, how to be creative, how to think for yourself, how to solve problems, how to focus, concentrate, how to read faster, how to remember things, how to be financially literate. You know, all the things that can really so, serve so, us. So, so when you. So obviously, this became a passion for you, in in part because your mess became your message. How did you first kind of get into the business of having you know all these clients where you would help them, uh, you know, improve their memory, speed yeah. read, improve so do would, brain performance hacks, and so on? Completely. And so for the, I know, I know you have a lot of entrepreneur listeners uh, or people who are on that path that starts business or they're transitioning and such, and or they value their freedom and they want to. So I, I would say that. Um, okay, I would say I would say a couple things. So. Um, when I, when I was growing up, I um, my my parents immigrated here, and I um, our family lived in the back of a laundromat, you know, in this small room and such. Um, we had no financial means, we, you know. We didn't. I had no education, right? I had just learning challenges and disabilities, and I knew nobody. Mm. Um, so a lot of people, when they want to be successful, they just say like, "Oh, you need money, you need education, you need contacts, connections, and network, and everything." But I feel like it's not. And this is people have said this before, so I'm not. The one saying this, but it's just—it's not about your resources, external resources. I find it's—it's the most successful people are have strong internal resourcefulness, um, creativity, ability to think, persistence, grit, growth, and all that stuff, um, discipline. And so I would say that um, struggling all through my academically, when I when I had these breakthroughs, how I ended up teaching this and turned this to my career, and this is my this is my twenty fifth year of teaching. Um, well, I haven't thought about that. So yes, twenty five years. Um, is that when I got these results, um, I started helping friends, and they started getting amazing results. Right? Like, what was the first friend you helped? Yeah, so I helped my my roommates and sweet mates because they saw like a big change in my not just my grades, but just you know everything. Right? You have one thing that's holding you back, and you fix it, and all of a sudden it opens up. Like you know, it primes the pump, allows us. Not only that, you you find you have a passion for what. Well, especially because this was like my kryptonite, right? And so that's the challenge. It's like every single day, a thousand times a day, unconsciously and probably hundreds of times consciously, I was thinking like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. And I would make up all these stories. And so when you overcome the biggest challenge that you have, I mean, it liberates you something fierce, right? Um, And so I would would say that I started helping people and tutoring them. And then then I... um, I wanted to help other people, right? And then maybe, t- and then um, someone was saying, "Hey," because I didn't have any money in school, and uh, and friends were always ordering Pizza Hut and chicken and broccoli, and I was like, you know, forty pounds underweight and such, so I couldn't afford to do that. So his friends were like, "How do you want you tutor this?" And I was like, "I don't know how to first thing about doing that," but I noticed that there was a classroom that wasn't being used one Thursday night around seven o'clock, and I saw, okay, next, I had this idea, next Thursday at seven o'clock, I'm going to put five or ten people in that room for free. And just teach them for a couple hours, and then maybe afterwards, one of them or two of them wants to be tutored, you know, ongoing, so I could eat. 
And then, so I go back to my dorm room, I take out a piece of paper, and it's my very first marketing. I wrote, free speed reading memory tips, get better grades in less time, Thursday, 7 o'clock, and I put the lecture center room in there. I, I love this. So basically, it's as if you anointed yourself a professor in a university setting, right. took over a classroom without permission, of course, from the from the gatekeeper, which was the university who yes. decides what courses go in every classroom. You announced it as if you were, you know. Uh, so it was really, it was exactly exactly that. Like the next morning, so I, I wrote this down, hand wrote hand wrote it, um, and uh, the flyer. And then the next morning, I make some photocopies and I put it on bulletin boards on the way to class. Not a lot, but just on the way to class. Fast forward to Thursday, the next Thursday, seven o'clock. I'm walking the, into the classroom and I'm just hoping five, ten people show up for this information session. And I turn the corner and there's a crowd of people outside the room. And I honestly, James, my my first instinct is this: is I oh my goodness, I was like, I hope whatever's going on ends soon so I could do my thing, right? And um, and I go there, I can't even get in the doorway, there's a tall guy, I was like, what's going on inside? And this guy looks at me, he's like, there's a speed reading class. And I was like, no, I was like, wow, what a coincidence. Like, what are the odds there's a speed reading class, the same room, the same night, the same time? Um, and I push my way in, this is how slow my mind is, right? And there's a room full of people there, even people standing in the back, and there's no one teaching. That's where I realized it took my slow brain all that time to realize why they're all there. And I do a head count, and instead of 10 people, there's 110 people in that room. Now, keep in mind, like I'm 18 years old, I'm wearing t shirt shorts, I have nothing prepared to talk about, and I'm phobic of public speaking. So my heart's beating out of my chest, I can't even breathe. Um, so I leave. Oh my God. And I, because I can't even, I can't perform, right? And I think we've all had these choice points, and I'm, I'm embarrassed, but, but I left. And, um, there's these fountains because I can't even go back to my dorm room because I don't my my family my friends will just make fun of me right um, and ask me what happened and everything. But I go to these fountains and I just meditate, you know. And I think meditation is part of my practice, it's part of my daily routine. I just like to meditate 20 minutes a day. I think it's important to slow down, get that white space. Anyway, when I'm meditating, I hear this voice inside my head, and it's my mom's. And um, basically, she says to me that all these you promised these hundred people that you're going to help them, and they all came out, and you're disappointing them, and you're disappointing me, kind of thing. And I'm doing this walking meditation back to my dorm room, and I don't even realize it, but I stop and I take one step back to the classroom. And it's funny, James, because how metaphorically, how one step in another direction can completely change your destination, your destiny, right? I, I I can relate to that a lot. It's not even, so in your case, a, a physical step, but I think any small committal action in the right direction kind of says, well, I did that, I could do the next thing. Exactly. So, so, so I just want to give an example, um, and it's totally not related to this. Yours is much more important and serious, and, and yours is this. I, I've read a lot about you, and this is the first time I'm hearing this origin story. So right. believe me, I'm going to make you continue it. But um, when I when I described to you before this subway comedy, the the first I wanted to videotape it. So uh, someone was with me with a video camera, and I was like, "Forget it. I'm not going to do it. We're just going to." Get off the subway at the next stop and, and go home. But then I said, "Why don't you just turn on the video?" And I still was not planning on doing anything, but that yeah. led to a series of mental actions that said, "You know, ladies and gentlemen," and you know, but okay, it so does. Go ahead. It does. And I, I just did. Um, I, I have this podcast, right? And it's a solo podcast, but I did one on procrastination, and I think that 
a lot of times people don't take on things because they have no momentum. And I think just taking one step, even going back to the Zykarnik effect, makes it a little bit easier. Um, this um, researcher out of Stanford, his name is Dr. B.J. Fogg. He's a habits expert, and one of his students co-founded um, Instagram. You know, think about it. you want to make those addictive and you know habitual for people to check. And I think they say that the average person checks in on Instagram like fifty-four times a day or something. Certainly, it's, my kids do. It's, it's extraordinary. And if you're doing less, then that means there's somebody out there doing a lot more. Um, but when you're talking about um, habits, um, he has this idea of tiny habits where, for example, like everyone knows they should floss, but a lot of people don't floss their teeth. And he's saying, okay, just floss one tooth because nobody is, are you going to stop at one tooth? Of course not. You're going to end up doing all your teeth, but it's just doing something. Even when I get people to do speed reading and I do these drills with them, I just say, hey, don't worry about reading for 20, 30 minutes. Just read one word. Right, just get the book open, and then from there, people could build positive momentum. And that's often uh, very good uh, writing advice. Like, okay, don't write a chapter of your novel; mm-hmm. write a hundred words of what happened to you this morning, and that kind of you know exactly loosens the or greases the whatever the pipes or that, whatever the analogy is. Is that how you got got you through your your books? Probably, yeah, because uh, you experience writer's block all the time. Um, but okay, so you, you, so, you take so, a step back. So I, I, I basically, I take a step back to the classroom. I don't even realize it's unconscious. And I go back to the classroom, same hundred people are there. And um, I end up doing a talk for two hours. And honestly, well, what was the first thing you said? You get up into the front. So, so, you must have said, "Yeah, okay." So uh, first thanks of all, everyone for coming. But right. after that, and I, I apologized uh, for, for for starting late and everything. And um, but I honestly. As a memory coach, as a memory expert, I don't remember what I talked about for two hours because I don't know how you are on stage, um, but it just, this is my very first public speaking experience, right? And it just f- flowed right through me. And, um, and I don't know, some speakers, I know Wayne Dyer did that. He never prepared. It just, he just trusted that, you know, that he'd be, be able to present and such. Um, but I don't remember what I did for two hours, but I remember exactly when I came out of trance at the end, I was just like, oh, I don't know what to do. Like, how am I going to? And I was just like, I remember I said, I was like, look, I don't know if I could help all of you, but I need about 10 hours to teach you what I know to get better grades and less time, speed reading, study, and memorize all this stuff. Um, you know, it's like I get $30 an hour to tutor. And I made this up because I used to get $30 an hour teaching tennis um, back in high school. And that was my only reference, right? I'm making this up as I go. And I said, um, you know, I'm not sure how to do this, but maybe meet a couple hours a week for five weeks. And if you're interested, I'll be in the student center tomorrow at noon to answer your questions. And I swear to you, James, 100 people just get up. And they just leave. Nobody talks to me. Like I'm totally confused. I feel completely two things. I feel completely exhausted and spent because when you face your biggest fear, I mean, afterwards I was wiped out. I mean, mentally, physically, emotionally, I was just spent, and I was also confused. Like I was like, like did anyone like me? Did I just totally mess this up? And I end up. I was so spent. I actually and exhausted. I actually fell asleep on the carpet in that classroom, and I got woken up. The ne- it was the best sleep of my life to this day. I got woken up the next morning from the class coming in the next morning, and I freaked out. I, I went back to my dorm room, showered, uh, went to breakfast, went to class. 12 o'clock comes, and I was like, oh, shoot, I, I have to go and meet people. Hopefully one or two of them shows up and are interested in tutoring. When I get to the students here at 12, I'm hoping one or two people are there. That same crowd of people are there. Oh and I gosh. swear, after two hours... 71 of the 100 kids signed up for a program that didn't even exist. And um, How did you have the time, actually? And, here's, and so here's the thing. That's 140 hours so, so, a week. So I put, I put those, those individuals, I put them into classes, three different classes of 25, right? Or 2025. And I didn't realize it because I didn't do the math that $30 an hour was um, for 10 hours was $300. Because all these kids in the student center 
there was the ATM machine was right there. They all went to the ATM machine, took out three hundred dollars cash, and I didn't realize they could do that because I, I didn't even have an ATM card. I didn't even know what that was because I didn't have that you know that resource. And so I'm not even nineteen years old, and I have twenty one thousand dollars cash um, in my backpack. <laughs> and going back to my original mentor that says who said, don't let school get in the way of your education. I actually use all the money. Part of it I used to feed my body because I was so underweight and I ordered food and you know Chinese food and Pizza Hut and all that good stuff. Um, but I actually use the majority of it to feed my mind. And I travel around the country, going to every event, seminar, audio program, just to learn my craft. Because suddenly also, it seems like you're, you, you it, it's like in stages. It's like, oh, you did this for six months, and now suddenly you're getting better grades, and your roommates, who you who you loved and trusted, noticed this difference, and you felt, uh, hey, um, this is a way for me to be right. higher up in the tribe. So you were getting this this mental reward for it. So then you give this give this class, and then the next stage, which is like, oh my gosh, people I don't even know are rewarding me for it and giving right. me money. And so, of course, you're going to double down on right. exactly what it is. It's giving you such exactly. pleasure. Exactly, and I t- and I take all that the, the, that revenue, if you will, and I, I reinvest it back into myself, into my skill set, in terms of my own learning. And the reason why I'm still teaching it to this day is that um, is one of the students. Uh, she is it remarkable. She read 30 books in 30 days. I, I remember reading this story, yeah. and because she wanted to read about uh, uh, battling cancer. Yeah, and so all the books were health and wellness maybe by a lot of our mutual friends. And um, her mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, was only given 60 days to live by doctors. And the books she was reading were helps, was books to help save her mom's life. And she ended up doing so. And um, By the way, credit to her mom for listening to her daughter over doctors. Yeah, and the thing is, is and I'm not, again, like, people should talk to qualified health practitioners and stuff and get you know, good, good information to make, make good decisions. It's just the doctors end up calling it a miracle, but her mother attributed it 100% to the great advice she got from her daughter and learned it from all these books. And that's the thing. That's where I realize the fundamental belief that I have is that if knowledge is power, learning is your superpower. That if knowledge is power, learning is your superpower. And the challenge is we're just not taught how to learn. That's all. Well, we're not taught how to learn and we're also not taught what to learn. Exactly. And I think... Um, like you said, we can all sit around and read math textbooks, but that might not be something we love. It might not be something that improves my life, and it might not be something, a lesson that I'm going to be able to kind of take into other areas of my life. So how would you suggest, so someone listening to this, mm-hmm. they're listening to all this, and they're like, well, I could read books any day, or I could yeah. you know, listen to podcasts or whatever. What should I you know, how do I find what what I love, what's going to improve my life, and what and how do I find the lessons that will contribute to that? Yeah, and I don't think that that's necessarily an easy, like you know, one one line sentence to be able to solve that. What right, I because would, you know, I mean, you look at your example. It took this series of challenges. Oh, yeah. It was like the the guy bringing you to his library. So he gave you. He kind of became this um, weird Yoda like example. And mm-hmm. then the next thing was your roommates sort of rewarding you. And then the next wave was these hundreds of people rewarding you and then money rewarding you and then uh, the the extra knowledge you were gaining from all these conferences. So there's like a series of stages. Like people sort of think success happens at the end, but you kind of have to reward yourself and celebrate the little successes all along the way. You obviously celebrated the little success of reading that first book, then the little success of your roommate saying, hey, what happened to you? Then the little success of 100 people showing up for a classroom and so on. Right. I mean, we've all seen the memes and the graphics on on social media where success is not a straight line. It's this really weird, you know, squiggly line. And but I think that there's, it's cliche. But I, I really feel like 
that we only fail when we fail to learn, right? That you know, when then when we when we when we when we win, that we feel we feel happy, right? But when we when we when we when we lose, then we get instead of happiness, we get wisdom. Hopefully, you know that feedback feed feedback if you Which will. Which is hard. It is. It is because it's hard not to get depressed. If you want to get better at tennis and you lose a game of tennis, you might say, "Ugh, I hate this. I hate this feeling of loss so much. I am not going through it again." Right, and that's why I think, like, if I was to boil down the characteristics of like that mindset, if you will success mindset or whatever i would say 4g's i would say that um, growth which you know i mean we we know that we're grossly underestimating like our capacity that that our intelligence our potential our memory is not fixed like our shoe size right so this growth mindset right when we're green we we grow and when we're brown we rot um, but besides growth i would say um, i would say grit is important and this is the idea where a lot of a lot of success shows up when we show up, and the challenges is when we reach this pain point. A lot of us pull back because we don't want to feel, we don't want to be disappointed, we don't want to get our hopes up, um, we, or maybe just we don't still have the grit and muscles. Meaning that, like yesterday, um, I hurt my back a little bit um, working out, and I went to a chiropractor. And while I was going in the office, there was a cryotherapy place right next door, and I was like, "Wow, that's neat." You know, have you seen? Have you done this before? Like, no. So there's this idea of cold therapy where that if you if you bang your knee on on a table, you put ice on it, right? To reduce swelling, to reduce inflammation. And we know a lot of athletes and performers, they dancers, they they take ice baths like like Michael Phelps because it lowers the inflammation, helps them recover better. So there's these cryo chambers in most major cities at spas where you could go into this nitrogen chamber and it go, brings it down to negative 200, negative 240 degrees, and you're in there in your underwear, basically. So won't that kill you right away? No, you're, you're, you're safe. It's, it's safe. I mean, again, like if I go into a water that's 200 degrees, I'm going to go into, sh- I feel like my body's going to go into shock within 40 seconds. Right. Well, that'd be pretty, yeah. I mean, it'd be ice. But it, so what I'm saying is like there's people like Wim Hof, right, who go in regularly in, in, these, in these ice, you know, in the Arctic and stuff like that, and they go swimming under. It's crazy. It's insane. But anyway, there's there's these closely monitored um, spas that they have these cryo chambers, and you go in and you're in there for 90 seconds to three minutes max, and it's cold. It's negative 200, negative 240 degrees. But the idea here is it's like a ner- nervous system reset. You know, it helps you lower inflammation and recover better, and all these other benefits. But the reason why I, I, I'm bringing this up is because the last 30 seconds for me is very. It's it's difficult, and I want to leave. And you obviously have the option to leave at any time. But I push myself because for me, grit is like a muscle. You know that because when you, because how we do anything is how we do everything generally. And I want to build that muscle because that will show up in other areas of my life. And so whenever you push yourself in certain ways um, to get more out of yourself, you tend to do that in other areas when you need it the most. And so growth, but- grit. But by the way, just on just on that point, mm-hmm. I notice, and 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 I'm saying this in a positive way. You use uh, a lot of really great cliches. Mm-hmm. So, like how we do everything is how we do anything, or, or how we do anything is how we do everything. That's not, something that's been said, you know, a million forever. times before. It's in lots of books, and I'm not criticizing you saying that. I actually think actually it's a great way. There's a reason something's a cliche. It actually is a great way to learn a valuable life lesson. Because there's a there's like all cliches. There's a truth to it, and so I'm I'm stating it more that so that we don't see. I think there's a difference between dabbling in something and really be, becoming more on this path to, for lack of a better word, mastery. Right. I feel like lots of lots of times people have listened to 
this show, other shows, and they could repeat a lot of what the expert could say because they've heard it somewhere before. But I feel like we don't really that the we do our a disservice to ourselves if we kind of kind of overlook the fundamentals. And for for me, in terms of high performance and when it comes to accelerating people's learning and learning things in a fraction of time, I feel like it comes back to the real to the basics in terms of the things that are to move the needle the most. Um, with the kind of results we want to be able to get. But a lot of times people always want to know the new thing, the new thing, the new thing. And for me, the old thing is always the new thing. Uh, I, I agree with that. So so, so, so growth... So we have the four Gs I'm, I'm talking about. So my, my, my main point in bringing this up is people can listen to a podcast even if they've heard it before. Maybe they listen to it in a different way or a deeper way and really think... Because I feel like if people aren't doing it, they don't, they don't, or if they, if they can't do it, that they, can't, they don't really understand it unless they're doing it. Well, well, I think that's really true, and it's it's so interesting. So I did give a, a a talk related to this once. I was at a conference, and everybody was talking about content marketing, which is this idea that oh, you shouldn't just put up an ad; you should write about what your brand means and what your company's motivation and vision is. And I said that doesn't actually work. Like you have to actually do things that show you're living the example of what you're. Right. Of what you believe in, you can't just write about it because then it's just theory. Then it's just exactly. words. So, so, and that's related to the grit. Like you can't say you, you, Jim Quick can say uh, being in cold helps your life unless you have right. the grit to go through this. And the, the two things I'll, I'll bring up because I, I I drop these names for the purpose of if I mention John Smith, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily doesn't put a picture in people's minds, but a lot of memory has to do with triggers. And that that's a lot of what my memory training is based on, controlling triggers. And triggers is a very important element in creating new habits. Because there's three parts to creating new habits or breaking habits. You're talking about, you have this behavior that you want to create, um, this new habit. Let's say you want to read 20 minutes a day, or you want to journal, or you want to meditate, or whatever it is. Um, according to Dr. B.J. Fogg, it has, it has three parts. It, they call it BMAT. So B is the behavior, M is motivation, A is the ability, and then T is the trigger. And so... So motivation, ability, a trigger. And so in order to be able to change a habit, you need the motivation to want that, right? Mm. Because if you're not motivated to do it, if your motivation is zero, zero times anything is going to be zero. So there's not going to be a big change. And, and again, I think motivation, just just to kind of relate it back, I think that's going to be a lot related a lot to does this kind of um, satisfy some of this life Love lessons right. idea. If it's relevant to us or to a problem that we are, we're suffering from or to a value that we have, because a lot of things going back to school, sine, cosine, x tangent, hypotenuse, y. Most people aren't going to remember that or the periodic table or anything because it had no relevance to them. And and I, I would just encourage people listening to this because I, I think motivation for a lot of people, particularly young people, and I know this was a motivation for me, is simply money. I need right. money to afford things that I want to buy or to or to not worry or to protect my family. I think the motivation's got to be one level higher than that at least. And it's worth thinking about at least. Even it if is. your motivation is money, at least think about what motivations might exist higher for you. And I think there's certain things we could do psychologically to enhance our level of motivation. Um, but my, going, like what? So even putting a number to it, like I just happen to do unconsciously, saying if your motivation happens to be zero, we could always do in a self-assessment Think what's my motivation to read this book today? And it happens to be a four, you know. And I, I could think about well, how, what what I need to do inside my mind or outside in the world, either my perception of it or my procedure on the outside to be able to make it a six. 
just jump it up two points. I'll say, okay, maybe I'll give myself this reward if I read this book, or maybe if I read this book, I'll be able to do this, and really feeling it and increases my inherent motivation. When I, the reason I bring up motivation is because it's, motivation is like a state, it's like a mood, right, of our mind and body. It's like a little snapshot because it's always in flux. It could go from zero to ten or whatever. Um, the reason I bring it up is because I find that I could get results with anybody as long as they have two qualities: that they are motivated and that they are teachable. Meaning that, um, and this is whether you're a parent or you're a teacher, or you're a coach. The same thing applies because you can't you can't help somebody teach them how to speed read or do learn a language, whatever it is, if they're not motivated to do so. And but even if their motivation was ten out of ten, if their teachability or their open mindedness was zero, right? They're not willing to learn new things because they feel like they already know it. Oh, I've been in sales for forty years, and you know, so what am I going to learn from you, kind of thing. Um, then teachability, if it happens to be zero, zero times ten is still zero, right? But on the opposite, it happens to be if someone's very teachable, maybe ten out of ten, but their motivation is zero, mm-hmm. then they're not going to get the results. So I can't make someone more teachable. I can't motivate somebody inherently because they they need some kind of something more intrinsic. But if to, the people have both those qualities, I feel like I could grow them. But going back to the four Gs, so we talk about growth mindset. Oh no, go back to BMAT. Where where where? No, we have in a lot the of, middle of like sixteen uh, have, uh, acronyms. Okay, but, so but BMAT uh, and the whole thing with a lot of teaching styles in terms of parables and open loops. We open loops so people want to know what the answer is. But so the last, so M is motivation, A is ability. So let's say you want the new habit to be flossing your teeth. You need the ability to know how to floss your teeth, right? If it's be able to read, you need to be literate. Uh, so let me ask you about this though. Let's say. Um, I want to be in better shape, and the the sport I love the most is tennis. I'm just making this up, uh, and so I'm motivated to play a lot of tennis to get in better shape. But I'm 50 years old, so I'm not going to have the ability that a 18 year old would have. Right, and and that's that. Then that's true for any kind of skill development. Am I too late to do BMAT? So BMAT is, is universal. It's it's like gravity. It, it applies for anything. So if you have the ability, obviously everyone's abilities range because of different ages, different genetics, different you know abilities, nature and nurture and such. But I mean, so everybody, I have a belief when we're going back to growth that everyone has the ability. Like if you take anybody regardless of their age or whatever, you put them on a wellness program and they're they're moving and such, they're going to make growth, right? They're going to make progress. But, but let me do a counter example, mm-hmm. which is like the Beatles. So the Beatles were teenagers. They They... Um, played music, so they, they 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 wanted to be better musicians, and they were motivated by music. They loved it. Um, the re- they they may or may not have had the ability, but they had the time to put in those so called ten thousand hours, which many adults, after they get kids and jobs mm-hmm. and mortgages, don't have that time. Right. So, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why they say children are such fast learners. Um, you know, they think on languages or musical instruments faster, but in actuality, the you know, part of it is besides them having a natural wonder and not being filled in terms of their teacup, you know, not knowing what they, you know, what they know, is um, is they have a lot of time. Children do compared to an adult. Right. right. So now, so now, someone listening to this is thinking, well, I have a mortgage, I have kids, yeah. I got to pick them up after school, I got to do this, I got to do that. How am I going to work on my ability? Right. Okay. So. Not everyone is equal in terms of their income. Not everyone's equal on their network. Not everyone's equal, you know, with their education level and everything else like that. But what we all are equal to is we all have twenty-four hours in a day, and our how people spend, invest their time. It, people's time, in terms of where they put their attention, expresses their their values, right? Because we can be very creative going back to. I don't believe that there's time management. 
as much as it is managing our priorities, um, what's most important to us. Like for you, we were talking about love and we we're talking about life and we we're talking about learning, right? Our lessons and such. But I'm saying that if people aren't scheduling time to increase their abilities, then if they if people can't find an hour a day, then they're doing something. I feel like they're they need to reevaluate how they're investing their time. So so it's interesting because it's not necessarily about mastery, it's about direction. So if you put in that hour a day, you're gonna the direction is gonna be upwards, uh, whether or not you become the Beatles or not. I think practice. I think practice makes progress. Right. And so I think that would be the goal. I think we're happiest when we see progress in our life, whether it's in our health, it's in our relationships, it's in our finances or anything. And so, but it takes time, an investment of time, focus, capital. And when I talk about focus, I mean, just imagine going outside and you have a magnifying glass, and you know what? Ha- you know, when you were kids, you used to burn like leaves and. Some people burn ants and stuff like that. But when you when you when you see that you see that My focal baby point, sister, I, right? So you, you when you're doing that, it, it becomes very bright, right? When light goes through a magnifying glass, you have this very bright focal point. But and it's interesting because we use the word bright to describe people who are very intelligent and very smart, right? They're bright, but maybe they're not smarter than you. Maybe it's just they're better focused. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of power. And so that's why going back to multitasking, I feel like it doesn't work. But I would say that the people invest in their abilities. And the last thing is the T in the BMAT, according to BJ Fogg, is trigger. That in order to um, enforce a habit, you need something, an external trigger to remind you to do it. And that's how memory really works, right? The, the idea here, like for example, uh, common time management. Um, Protocol is this is called the the Pomodoro technique, which is basically saying they did studies with people and found out their focus takes a dive after twenty five to thirty minutes. That pretty much you could watch an episode of you know your favorite TV show and then it's pretty much your focus is not there. And so the Pomodoro technique is basically taking your uh, your your smartphone and sending an alarm for thirty to forty five minutes, and when the alarm goes off, you get up and you take five minutes and you just. You know, you move around, you take some deep breaths, you get some, you hydrate, you know, you, you refresh yourself and you come back and you're going to be more productive. And the reason why you want to do this, I'll give you a couple, couple more reasons why you want to do it, besides the fact that you lose focus after a certain amount of time, is that in, in memory training, we know that cramming doesn't work. That if you cram for eight hours a day without a break, eight hours straight, it's not going to be anywhere near as effective as if you took a break every 45 minutes to an hour. Because um, there's this these phenomenon called primacy and recency. Primacy says you tend to remember things in the beginning of something. Recency means you tend to remember something at the end. So, for example, James, you go to a cocktail party, right? And you meet maybe they're all new people at the party. You'll remember. Primacy says you'll remember people in the beginning at the party. Recency says you'll remember the last people you met at the party, more recent, right? Prime meaning first, beginning, um, and that you tend to forget the people at the end and mean in the middle. And so there's this big dip, unless somebody stands out or they're emotional, like something that stands out in, in meeting them. Same thing with a list. If I gave you a list of 30 words to memorize, you probably remember the beginning words and the end words, unless there were some words in the middle that stood out. So there's this big gap um, and dip. So like if you study for eight hours without hmm. a break, it's like you remember stuff in the beginning and then you remember stuff at the end, but in the middle you forget. So you want to give yourself a lot of beginnings exactly. and middles. Exactly. So you do you create these 30 hmm. minute breaks or 45 minute breaks in between, then you create a lot of more beginnings and ends, primacy and recency. So you pick up a lot more content. And so that's just in terms of studying techniques, you know, it's one of the one of the better things you could do. So so this is great. This this BMAT and this was under the topic of of, 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 of grit, of, basically. Of, of, of creating new habits. So yeah. I mean everything comes down to the the whole 
here's the cliche quote, right? First, first you create your habits, and then your habits create you, right? First you create your habits, and then I haven't heard that cliche before, but it sounds good. <laughs> there you go. And so, uh, I, I we did um we did two dedicated episodes on how to create new habits and then how to break old habits because it's a little bit different process because planting a tree is a very specific process, but tearing that tree out is something that's different. And so I think it's, it's important for people to understand their habits. But going back to the four Gs, you have growth mindset, you have a grit mindset. And going back to, to grit specifically, what I was going to mention about dropping the names, um, a couple years ago there was a big um, boxing match, uh, Mayweather and Pacquiao, right? And I'm not a big boxing fan, but I like the highest level of competition because I like to learn and see what excellence sure. is and champions and stuff. Um, and I get this phone call from Sylvester Stallone saying, Jim, do you want to watch the the boxing match at my place? And I'm like, I totally want to do that. How, okay, just time out, break. How does Sylvester Stallone say to himself, huh, I'm going to have a, uh, I'm going to watch boxing on TV. Who should I watch it with? Should I call up Al Pacino or should I call up Jim Quick? How does yeah, he I think, posted- I'm calling Jim Quick. Screw Al. So <laughs> He okay. was so annoying at the last boxing match. So I think Al, he, I probably was low on the on the list of invitations because there a lot of, it was kind of interesting room. So I was sitting on the couch and we're watching the the. The match, right? You're and not answering it, the no, question. I, I am, I am, I am. <laughs> so to my left on the couch was Stallone, and to his left was, um, sorry, it was, it was Stallone, and to his left was Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So the last people did get invites. So I was probably the last person on on this list. And if you honestly, if you took a picture of that couch, people would be like, "Who photoshopped that Asian dude in that photo?" Well, how did he think to call you? At all for a boxing match that oh, he's, had, going, had, had, he's had, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and had, had, I don't know uh, Boris Becker and whoever. Uh, let's also call Jim Quick. Boris Becker. It's <laughs> um, the only tennis name I could think of. Right. So um, we had we had just had dinner that week um, and we were talking about this match. So it just it was it was topical. But um, and people actually see on Instagram there's a picture of, of there's an interesting photo of me and Sly. But going back to my lesson and going on grit. Afterwards, seeing the match, right? I, I went to the two of them. I was like, these two champions battling it out. It's amazing. $300 million. I mean, the highest level of competition. What does it take to be a champion? And um, I'll always remember what Arnold said because he said, Jim, this is the key. He's like, the difference between an amateur and a champion is the champion is willing to push past the pain period. Hmm. And that for me is like a great definition of grit, right? Because in order to grow muscle, it's like you don't want to do. Like the first five or six or whatever just warms up the muscle, does nothing for you. But it's the ones that you least want to do that you're going to get the most benefit from. And it's kind of like life, right? I mean, they say that the, the quality of our life is comes down to our ability to have difficult conversations and do the hard stuff. You know, so then our life is easier and such. And so that was that was very that was very telling for me because I've noticed the parallel between that and business and that and health. And in order to accomplish anything, you have these problems. That come up and, and there's there's something else in that quote too, which is very interesting, which is that the pain period begins long before your ability ends, because your brain, as soon as it feels a little bit of pain, is like, uh oh, what's happening? Shut everything down while we figure this out. And so um, when I had a podcast with Jesse Itzler, and this is over a year, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, he wrote a book, Living with a Seal. A Seal was training him. You know, I won't go into the, all the specifics of, of his thing, but one thing he said was, at the moment where you feel I can't do this anymore, from that moment you can do at least forty percent more, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just the brain and body at work. 
And I find the people that are involved in certain levels, I'm not just saying in Hollywood, and whether it's technology and relationships and physical performance and fitness like the SEALs, they have an acute awareness, um, self-awareness, meaning they understand what motivates them, they understand pain and pleasure. Because I'll tell you actually, when I was talking to Stallone, I was saying, hey, I have this potential gig. I was telling him, he was like, where are you speaking next? And I was saying, oh, this thing in, in Dubai. And you know, I was telling him about projects. And I was like, do you think I should do that? And um, and he was like, and this is what Stallone said. He said, he said, Jim, will the um, will the pleasure outweigh the the pain? And um, and that was interesting because that was another like mark on pain, right? Because he was acutely sensitive to it. He was like, will the will the pleasure be worth the pain? So so the pain is it? like sort of traveling, being right. away with friends, uh, away from friends, just all the annoyances, and the pleasure is whatever you decide. Exactly, and then I mean, coming back to discipline, and, and you, you, I, that's why I think it's so important to have routines. Like I have my morning routine and I have my evening routine for the same reason we were talking about before about not having to suffer from decision fatigue. So the first hour, I literally don't have to put any thought into because it's so set up for me to just you know to light up my brain and to win all the time. But I think the dis at the beginning, it took more discipline and willpower until it became a habit and it became unconscious. So you know, for people it's listening, building your grit muscle. Exactly, and putting myself in situations where you you get comfortable being uncomfortable because that's ultimately where we're going to grow the most. So growth, grit, and the last two G's um, for mindset, I would say um, a giving mindset, hmm. giving meaning that it's not just about me, it's about we, because I think the whole reason to grow is because you have, it allows you to have more to give. And this is related to what we were talking about earlier with motivation. Like yeah. make sure it's about something a little bit more meaningful then exactly. as important as money is, by the way, because I'm I'm not saying money's not important. It's extremely important to live in this society, but to succeed, you have to have the we in there more than the me, or just as exactly, much as the exactly. Me. Even 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 when it comes to the giving, I feel like that everything in nature grows um, and gives. Right, everything in nature is green and it grows, or it's brown and it rots. Um, and everything in nature also has to give back to the rest of the ecology. Um, and if it's not, then it gets eliminated, right? And I just feel like that we don't give to get, we give because it's who we are. And I feel like- um, Actually, let me understand that. Like, uh, is it, does a leaf give? I, I'm an idiot, right? So yeah, yeah. so does a leaf give does. to ecology? It does, oxygen through photosynthesis. Okay, so uh, does car- uh, a cockroach give to ecology? I, I'm, I'm sure like we lost all the bees or something in society, like that, everything, there's a consequence because it's all systems. Everything, there's this whole butterfly effect. Literally, I'm using butterflies to explain the, Butterfly effect, but the whole butterfly effect is this idea where a butterfly flapping its wings in Los Angeles could create a tsunami, you know, across the country because everything is is dynamic systems. But my my point in bringing this up and giving is because we'll do more sometimes for other people than we will for ourselves. And I just feel like as long as we're growing, we're filling up our teacup, so we have more to be able to give to somebody else. The other reason why I bring this up is from an accelerated learning standpoint. I think it's very important for people to listen to these shows to listen to your show when they do and then think about somebody that they want to pass this knowledge on to like teach it and coach mentor somebody in this area because if somebody wants to learn something faster learn it with the intention of teaching it to somebody else mm. and that will double your your effectiveness because when you learn to teach you're paying attention differently you're taking notes differently you're making it your own and um, here's the tweetable this is mine when you when, I like when, learn to teach is tweetable yeah i mean when I, okay, well, here's an even better one um when I teach something, I get to learn it twice. When I teach something, I get to learn it twice. At Jim Quick, K W I K I.
on Twitter, <laughs> Instagram, and Facebook. No, I'm going to take credit for it um, myself. <laughs> but here's the thing. But the, but that's the intention, though. Like we learn. Like we, we you know we grew up, James, hearing this phrase that said, "Those who can't do teach." Right? If you can't do business, you teach business in business school. But when I learned this stuff, I I, I was very ignorant. I actually didn't think it was a negative. I was like, wow, if I can't do something, let me teach it. And then if I teach it, I could do it. And that was my I, that's my thought process. But I would learn with the intention of well, teaching. Well, the teaching is still doing. Right. So. And, and so going back to giving, I feel like that everyone here would be able to learn even faster rate if you learn with the purpose of giving. That's why I launched the podcast a few months ago is because I was thinking like, oh, how can I democratize this information in really 10, 15 minute you know, brain hacks and make it free for everybody, right? And that was our way of just giving back to our community. And then finally, the, f- the fourth G, I would say, in like this kind of superhero mindset is first, you know, you're growing, um, you have grit, grit mindset, you're giving, and then gratitude, right? And that's kind of the elusive obvious. But I feel like that we can, success, you can only really build on success. And so, but I feel like we could only have the things that we're most appreciative for. And if anyone but, really, but, but I feel like there's like a lazy way to do gratitude and a more difficult way. And like it's easy for someone to kind of look out at a sunset and say, "Oh, I'm so happy to be here." Right. Like, what's what's real gratitude? What's mm-hmm. hard gratitude? Yeah, I mean, I would say active gratitude, just like active giving, because anyone could just have the spirit of giving and not do it. I think the actual act of it. So, for example, um. A lot of people have a vision board, right? You know, vision board is that thing, that little collage that you make on on poster board where you cut out, you know, pictures out of magazines of things you want to be, do, have, share, places you want to live, and vacation, and your car, all that stuff. Um, vision board, right? And you could take the invisible, make it visible. Um, for me, I have, I literally have a gratitude board, and a gratitude board is this: all the things that I've already have in my life that I'm just really grateful for. All on one board that I could look at and I could feel it, and that's more active because it took time mm. to put that together. And as I achieve things that are on my goal list or my bucket list, I can put those things on my gratitude board. And if anyone wants to feel instantly more wealthy, um, it's literally I would just make a list and count all the things you have that money can't buy. I mean, mm. if you're listening to the show right now and you have the capacity to hear and to process, you know, the ability to talk, the ability to see your senses. I mean, gratitude. At the most, if you know, if you have, if you have your health in any kind of way, um, like even when I was very sick with my sleeping challenge, they, they, they have this phrase that says, um, "A healthy person has a thousand dreams, um, but an unhealthy person has only one dream." Mm. You know, that's why I think self care. I just put that on Twitter. It's like self self love and self care is not selfish. I just feel like self care is so important nowadays because we're under an immense amount of stress. And a lot of us, you know, in, in, what, in what ways are people really nurturing themselves and taking, you know, getting the right sleep, getting the right food? Because it's, you know, and that helps to build grit, right? It helps to build resilience by, you know, investing in our own physical and emotional health. It, it's really true. And this is, uh, you know, there's, um, there's a line from the Yoga Sutras written in 350 BC that the it's it's one line and it's the nine reasons why somebody might have a uh, difficulty getting enlightenment so whether or not you believe enlightenment that's what was believed in 350 BC but the first thing that on this list is sickness like so you have to basically focus on uh, people don't think oh how, what's health related to you know spirituality or religion or mental health or whatever you have to be physically healthy to have the energy to do all these other great things in life. You only have one yeah. life, and it's fueled 
only by your energy, the energy of your body. Yeah, and I noticed that when it comes to gratitude in terms of that vibration, it helps. It's helped me through a lot of when I so active gratitude is so how I get on my stage fright is doing that process before I go on stage. I'll actually focus on a handful of people and reassociate myself to thinking like success stories, people that I've helped, and just like that. Because when I put my focus on them, then I can't be focused on myself being. Scared. I see. So let's say you're about to go out and speak in front of a thousand mm-hmm. people, and you're thinking, "Oh my God, I might not do well. They might not uh, respond to what I'm saying." Or do, what do you th- you think of maybe the woman with the, who read the thirty books? You think right. of those first and those are the and- things. And I and I literally changed. And I also just um, put this on Instagram uh, yesterday. Was um, that one of the gr- one of the greatest? Are you digital shaming me? <laughs> this is one of the um one of the great like. Brain gratitude hacks. There were like for me is just I changed my I got to to I get to. So instead of saying I got to give this presentation, I got to work out, I got to pick up the kids, I got to read this book or whatever, I just change it to I get to right. I get to pick up the kids, I get to speak on stage, I get to work out, and I get to and it changes. It's like so subtle. It's changing the the O in got to the you know the E in get. And it just changes the meaning, and it changes the feelings I have. And if if we talked about before that people aren't logical, they're biological and they're emotional. It changes, you know. And all learning is state dependent, and that's one of the reasons why we don't learn a lot. You know, we have to. I mean, that inherent motivation of those feelings um, that I think that success, I call it H cube, goes from your head to your heart to your hands. That you could affirm things in your head, you could visualize things in your head, you could set goals in your head. But if you're not acting with your hands, nothing changes, right? But usually, what's missing is that second H, which is your heart. The emotion, right? The, I think that's really true. I think again, what I've noticed. You, you asked me earlier what changed after I started giving things away, and and really this process started much earlier than that. That was sort of the end of the process. But what really changed for me was that I started feeling a lot more things in my heart mm-hmm. on my daily activities and decisions. Much like you would say, Tony Shea, because he's only wearing the same shirt. He can focus more on the things that affect his heart, as opposed to like what shirt he should wear doesn't really affect it for him his heart. Right, and people could declutter all that, and and it gives you more in terms of what's most essential. So, so we we've we've covered a lot, and I kind of want to piece it together. Um, you know, there's the six hats, the four Gs, BMAT. Um, there's 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 all these things. I do think um, everything kind of stems from. What I'm now going to call the three L's: love, <laughs> life, and lessons. And basically, you know, you're only given one life, and this is what you should do with it: is growth, grit, giving, gratitude. Here's how you get grit. Here's how you get gratitude. Here's how you build the growth mindset. Right. You know, all of these things are are kind of connected all to this love, life, and lessons. Your your heart. How can you improve your life? And the lessons that you can either learn or, as you say, teach, because you'll learn twice as you teach. Very much so. I, I think if you know, if we're parting on this, like I like frameworks, right? Because once people have those distinctions, they could start kind of carving out the world or their model of the world into it and start filtering by it, saying like how much even when I talked about in the prior episode about the ten keys for you know unlocking your superior brain, it allows you to see the areas that you're neglecting by putting a name to it. And I think that's important. But ultimately uh, absolutely, which is why uh which is why again I wasn't critical of the cliches. I think mm-hmm. I think actually if all you did out of this episode was to take any one of these cliches and just right. think about it for a couple of hours, it would be immensely valuable. Because I've used the I I I 
the I got to, change it to mm-hmm. I get to. I've used that and it's incredibly valuable. Yeah, and it's so simple. And that's the thing going back to dabblers. Like people could listen to something. And what I would love for people is to hear something because we know that common sense is not always common practice, that the little things can make the biggest difference. But I would I would encourage everyone who's listening to this is to take one or two ideas, you know, out of this conversation and just employ it. Because knowledge is not power. Knowledge is only potential power. It only becomes useful when we're actually applying and taking action on it. So let me ask you this. You deal with so many peak performers. Like you've mentioned a couple of, mm-hmm. you know, celebrity clients or friends or whatever. Uh, what do you, they, they already have gone through all of this. That's why we know, that's why everybody in the country knows their name. Right. So everybody knows who uh, Jim Carrey is, for instance. By the time you've met him, by the time you've mentioned him, um, what do you see in someone like that? Or or like you mentioned the story about Arnold mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone, but what do you see as that kind of final leg of peak performance that keeps them at a high level? Is it is it a persona that yeah. they, they keep f- feeding or what is it? Okay, so I, I like to reverse engineer this a lot, you know, because I get um, a lot of feedback. And so when I'm, so for example, with Jim Carrey, I was coaching him. He had called me up and said, Jim, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in Dumb and Dumber. I want to get smart. <laughs> I want to get super smart before Dumb and Dumber. And we're in his kitchen and we're making guacamole. And it was me and him and it was um, Eckhart Tolle, <laughs> um, which is a really Are you kidding in, in, me? An interesting mix. <laughs> um, what the hell is Eckhart Tolle doing in there? Because, uh, Jim Carrey is very interested in a lot of this transformation work. And, and so it just happens to be there. And, um, and I'm talking and so to you him. called up Eckhart Tolle, who lived in Vancouver, and Eckhart Tolle I flew down. I didn't call up Eckhart Tolle. No, he did. <laughs> he called Eckhart Tolle and Jim Quick. This is, I was, when's Dumb and Dumber? 1994. He called, or no, 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 it must have been a little later. This was the second Dumb and Dumber. Okay, yeah. so so he calls up Eckhart Tolle, who sold 7 million copies of The Power of Now, and and Jim Quick, and right. you both, guys were both so we're, in this kitchen. And we're making guacamole. Is Eckhart Tolle a great guy? He's a good, he's a good guy. Um, power, power of now. So just excellent book. Reference. I love the book. Right, and so and I, I talk a lot about presence, and we had a great conversation about presence and how to remember names. And I think people, I think the art of memory actually is the art of presence and the art of attention, and I, that's what a lot of you know my training is based on. Anyway, but in terms of my takeaway, you know, you're you're asking like, what is how do these people get to this level, and what are the you know what do they value, and what's the difference? And I would say for him, his motivation. I wanted to know what his motivation was, uh, Jim Carrey specifically. Like, why is he acting like a fool in all his movies and doing that? Like, and does any concern how people look at him and everything? And he actually says he said Jim is the exact opposite. He's like, I could be, you know, an ace. Ventura, pet detective, and I can act like a complete spaz because I feel like that if I could be, act like that or in, in living color and I could be ex- totally extreme, unconsciously I'm giving other people who are watching, you know, the audience that's watching, giving them, them the permission to just be themselves. And he said his driving force, he thinks the biggest challenge that we all have as a community is uh, just, you know, in this world is that we have to, um, we're so concerned about the feelings and how people perceive us, you know, our peers and everything. And we tend to fall to the level of other people's expectations, you know, of us. And he says, my, my goal, my mission has always been to help, this is the exact words, free people from concern. That that's his religion. He wants to free people from concern. And he does it through his art of stand up and television and, you know, movies and stuff like that, where he could play an extreme character and act completely crazy or dumb and dumber or a liar or whatever it happens to be in the movie. And by doing so, he gives people permission 
just to be themselves. So it's interesting because sometimes it's scripted where he's playing an actor, uh, you know, he's playing a role um, where where it gives that permission. And sometimes it's his own act where he's writing and yeah. being a comedian where he has to figure out what those concerns are so he can play the role of someone who is maybe blindly unconcerned and still surviving and so the audience can see and laugh. Right. The laugh is sort of the release of that tension of concern. It's very, very much so. And I'd be interested just, you know, as a, I don't know if I, what, I, what I'd be doing, this is the only thing that I've you know been doing my whole like kind of career, but it's interesting to see actors play these different roles. Like when I was on set with Will Smith, he, he was filming from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you know, every night. And I was like, how do you how do you do that? Like, how do you just like, you know, like in the entertainment industry, it's always hurry up to wait. You know, that's the catchphrase. It's like you have to hurry up to get on set and then you just have to sit there and wait all the time. I was like, you know, how do you just wait there until three o'clock in the morning until they call you when it's your turn? And how do you get prepared and how do you, you know, get ready? And he was like, Jim, this is exact words. He's like, Jim, I don't have to get ready. I stay ready. And I'm like, oh shoot, that's that's really badass. <laughs> um, like, okay, that, so, so break that down. What does that mean? So for him, like for me, you could wake me up at four o'clock in the morning and just ask me about my morning routine, my sleep, because I, li- I live what I, what I teach, right? Because there's a level of congruency. And I find that it's really the people that have prepared the most. Because I feel like a lot of success is preparation, like you. Like you have guests on, but you, you study their work. You were online watching my other interviews and reading the books and all that. You know, that homework makes a big difference. Um, and it shows up, and I uh, feel like, oh, sorry, go ahead. I feel like for him, he's just he's so determined, right? He has this thing where I was like, "How do you keep yourself active?" He was like, "What?" And he's like, "Jim is like physically, and mentally active." He's like, I, "Every day I run and I read." I'm like, "That's interesting." Like, it may, it's like metaphorically, it's not just running. You know, it's just something physical, something mental every single day to keep me, myself in shape. Um, it, that's why I think it's a difference because you know people attribute me to helping boost their mental intelligence to be able to have facts, figures, form, like all that stuff at, at their mental fingertips. But it, I think more important than what I do than help people become mentally intelligent is become mentally fit. Like I've had students that I've seen that, and that's the stay ready. That part. that that's the like this this woman. Uh, she called me up at the office. She's like, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, who's this? She was like, I went through your your online memory course and I was just like, let me tell, tell a quick story for you. I was like, and I found out, she told me a story where her grandmother gave her this family heirloom as a necklace and it was given to her, not her mother, not her three sisters, it was given to her and she was entrusted with it to protect it and, and, you know, for the family and she hid it in her home. And uh, if you ever hid something so well, you come up with a password that's so clever and you just, it's so clever you don't even remember what it is. So she hid it and she couldn't find it. For a year goes by, two years go by, three years go by. And she thought it was stolen. It was lost forever. She got so much grief from her family and she felt so bad holding on to all his angst. A a couple weeks after going through our program, she woke up in the middle of the night, two, three o'clock in the morning. She ran down two flights of stairs. She goes behind the boiler into this little crevice cake, like it pulls out like the necklace. And I was like, well, in that program, we don't teach you how to find misplaced objects. She was like, Jim, I don't know what it is. It's just going through this. I'm starting to remember names. I'm learning this language. This is like, so she's waking up parts exactly. of her brain. She just because it's the difference. Like you have a personal trainer, right? And what is a personal trainer's job? Is it's to make you physically sharper, faster, stronger, more energized, flexible, and everything. But that's that's what I do. I'm a personal fitness coach for your, you know, for your brain. Right. It's not like you're just. Uh, it's not like the per, the personal trainer is just making you lift a hundred pounds. It's actually making you stronger for every area of your life. Exactly, like and that's how I describe. Like people ask all the time, 
Oh, I do. You know, and our mutual friend Clay Bear, who talks about who, the- <laughs> who? who Clay, who Clay A Bear. He's in the room, so yeah. we're we're making fun of him. So he um so he has this you know, six word process that I think is genius. He keynoted at one of our events, our superhero brain event, and his superpower was talking about clarity. And he's like, this makes so much sense. Like. You introduce yourself how many times a day, and it's just like how many of you actually have a design process for you know creating something that's interesting and fascinating to you know keep the conversation going as opposed to just kind of going off and spending a minute and using buzzwords and everything. And so for me, my my six word intro is just something simple. It's like you know I I, I build better brains. You know I build better brighter brains, and it's just like oh well what's that? And then they start talking about and it's a nice intro. And so for for me. That's what I feel like I am. I, I just like people want to be physically sharper, faster, energized, flexible. That's what I do for your brains. I make your brains sharper, faster, more fit, stronger, more powerful, more energized, clear the brain fog, have clarity, flexibility, agility, and that's what I. That's my passion. Going back to whether it's um, the Will Smiths or the Jim Carreys or whatever, I, I'll tell you the highest performers, whether it's Branson or anybody, they have a, a superpower of self awareness. And I would I would end with this. That if we are to abstract and go at a meta level, that I find that the most successful people and the most fulfilled people, they, it's funny, James, because I'm just talking to you, I'm just kind of processing it. I feel like they have two things that it takes, you want to know who you are and you want to be who you are. And this maybe wraps up our whole conversation here where you need, you need to have the curiosity to know yourself really be fascinated with yourself, like know yourself, and then have the courage to really be yourself. And you know, I feel like, gosh, Jim, I kind of want to do another two-hour podcast just about those two things because I feel like it took me a really long time. And I and it's a process, so I can't say I know who I am. It's a process. It's, it's, it's uh, practice makes progress as opposed to practice makes perfect. Knowing who you are is really hard. It is, and and then being who you are is harder. It is because it's scary. You can't. N- nobody really is who they are because in every setting, you you put on a slightly different persona, but you're trying to make each persona as close as possible to right. who you really are. And and I notice also it takes up energy too, right? Like we have this energy body of like who we want to project in the world, and this kind of brings everything we've talked about in this conversation together when we're talking about. Uh, Facebook depression. Everyone puts a highlight reel, a right. trailer of what's amazing, and they have. We have all that. We put a lot of energy in terms of how we want to be perceived, and I feel like we put energy into a place where it's our insecurities. So we have this ideal self that we put energy in, and how we want the world to see us. And we have this another energy body of of our insecurities and our fears and what we're scared of, like who we are afraid of being uh, or people seeing. And then there's our real self, and I feel like if people feel depleted and they feel like there are they don't have the energy um, anymore. They're exhausted. It's maybe just trying to carry around those bodies um, and using, you know, because it takes a charge and energy. But knowing yourself is kind of like what you were talking about. It's like our truth. It's like when we were kids, like who do, who determined who we are? Like even when people set goals, I think a lot of people set goals for things they don't really want, you know, because it's goals that are set unconsciously by, you know, their parents or their family or their or the Joneses or their colleagues. You know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're pursuing things that's not but their I, truth. But that's true. And at the same time, and this is what I always tell people, list the things you really enjoyed from the ages of 6 to 14. Mm. Because often those things will age in their own way with you. So for instance, you might have loved comic books 
between the ages of six to 14, among many other things. Like right. You'll have tennis, you'll have comic books, you'll have other things, but that's on your list. And so now when you are older, it's like your whole story almost could be described in terms of like a comic book analogy and you work with, you know, on those types of, you know, actor with those types of right. actors and movies and so on. So it's really that, it's not like you're a superhero. It's like, but your, your interests and passions and loves now as a much older person have, are, are just an evolution of what you loved as a six-year-old. I love that. So it, it's very interesting. So the last, so for, before I ask the last question, which it might even be a meaningless question for most people, but before I ask the last question, A, I just want to mention, there's going to be a great excuse to have you on the podcast again, because I know you mentioned earlier, you're writing an, un, an as yet untitled book. So when do you think that book will finally come out? Next year. Next year, so we're 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 looking towards next year having you back on. And uh, how can people find you right now? Because I wanna I wanna I everybody to find you. Um, well, I would I would welcome everyone to listen to my new podcast. Um, I, I want to learn everything that you're doing because you're one of the most admired people you know in the space. And so congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, uh, it's called Quick Brain K W I K Brain. People can go to quickbrain.com um, or find it on Stitcher or iTunes or whatever. Um, every podcast is only 10 or 15 minutes long. It's basically brain hacks for busy people who want to learn faster and achieve more. So there's an episode on how to read a book a week without speed reading. There's a book episode on how to remember everyone's name. There's an episode on learning languages. There's an episode on my top 10 favorite brain foods. An episode on how to change your habits and how to break old habits. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a fun show. It's just me riffing on one thing that's going to make a measurable difference in people's lives. So that's, um, that's the podcast. I am definitely going to start and listening then, to it. And then social media. Um, no social media shaming, but I'm just very active on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and it's all at Jim Quick, KWK. And I would love, actually, if people could um, get share their big ahas and tag uh, James and myself on social media. I would love, love to know like your big aha from this conversation, if there was something that was there um, that just was stood out for you. And I would also love... Um, I'm traveling a lot. I would love any good book recommendations. So if anyone who's listening to this wants to share like your favorite reads right now, I'm very curious. That's actually how I bonded with Elon Musk. Um, I don't ever talk about this, but we we bonded over sci-fi books. And I'm a big advocate. I I never used to read fiction books um, for a long time because I didn't even have time to read you know the nonfiction books I had to for school and personal growth. But I find that um, I was reading a lot the past few years on the power of reading fiction. Um, it builds your fiction imagination. Is, is- is fiction's great, and I'll tell you why from my perspective, mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear Elon yeah. Musk's favorite science fiction books. Fiction's great because it's written by the best writers. Mm-hmm. So nonfiction, almost by definition, is not written by the best writers. It's written by the best of what they're writing about. So uh, uh, Andre Agassi is not going to be the best writer about tennis. He's the best tennis player writing. <laughs> So, so there's a big difference. The the fiction is actually by people who've mastered the craft of writing. Yeah, that's very true. His biography, by the way, is amazing. Yeah. Um. And so I would say that for for me, fiction reading is enjoyable. It it improves your imagination, but it also it's been shown to increase emotional intelligence, especially in the area of empathy. That when you're reading books with um, stories and characters, it it gives you a level of empathy that. Um, Higher degree of emotional intelligence. What, what was what was Elon Musk's favorite science fiction book? Um, we weren't talking about this a favorite. Well, except we were talking. We we were bonding over at the time, um, going deep in, in in a book called Ender's Game. Oh yeah, Ender's Game is great. Um, and at or, the time, Orson Scott Card. Yeah, and they were talking about this is before the film. Much came better out, than the movie, like right? Exactly. 
Um, but it, so I, I would encourage people to. But I, um, going back to the social media, I would love to get some really good book recommendations. And if you could tag both of us in there, that would be amazing. And uh, finally, I don't know how people, how much people care about this, but what? Give me one Eckhart Tolle story, Tolle story, because I I just think he's such an interesting character. <laughs> okay, so I. Okay, this, this is a little bit skewed um, because we, we really spend most of the time. He didn't really talk a whole lot when we were together. He doesn't seem like a talker. <laughs> no, but um, ironically, like um, listen to Eckhart. I listen. Does you listen to like Audible? Like um, I've I've listened to his um some of his seminars that he's. So I, I listen to books on on. I was gonna say cassette. <laughs> it's kind of dating myself. Um, you know, books, audio books. Um, and people ask all the time. I prefer reading when I can because I feel like that's more active. But I, I do listen to audio books and obviously podcasts. I do happen to listen to them at one point five or two two x or something like that because I think we could all learn at that speed and train ourselves to do that, just like we do with reading. Um, Eckhart Tolle, interesting enough. Like, um, you know, going over the sleep issues and stuff. I can't listen to. There's like sleep um, learning is a myth. You can't listen to an audio while you're sleeping and expect to learn anything brand new. Um, it just it's been debunked. Um, if you are learning anything, it's only because those are the times when you're awake and you're picking up you know bits and pieces and everything. Now you can do it through dream, and I did a whole episode on how to remember your dreams. Like I have this whole how to start my day, and the first thing I do when I wake up is remember my dreams. And uh, because this is interesting, I don't know if you know this, James, but a lot of incredible works of art, literature, movies. Um, science um, actually came through uh, dream recollection. Sure, I forget the. There's a classic Keith Richards story where, like, one of the most famous Rolling Stones songs, and I forget which one it is. Yeah. He the lyric. He just he he woke up, wrote down the the mm-hmm. first few words, went back to sleep, and then woke up again and wrote the whole song. Very much so. And that Paul McCartney did that with Yesterday. Um, Mary Shelley came out with Frankenstein in a dream. I mean, Elias Howes, who created the sewing machine, created that in a dream. Uh, the, the periodic table was in a chemist's dream. It's pretty crazy. But the challenge is most Back people... Batman, I'm going to kill. Right. <laughs> but it's a challenge because when most people wake up... So what happens is you're learning all day and you're trying to solve problems all day as an entrepreneur or as a student or whatever. And then, But when you dream, your subconscious doesn't stop. It actually keeps on working on it. So often in, in those times, you come up with these revelations and these insights. But what often happens is when you wake up the next morning, you forget. Right. So I did this six ways on how to remember your dreams episode, and that's the first thing I do when I wake up. And the second thing is make my bed, but everything is for my brain. Right. Um, anyway, with Eckhart, um, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him because he was there for a little bit and he didn't talk a lot. But I actually, for me, to help me sleep, it's the only audiobook I could listen to is Eckhart. He actually, his modest the way he talks, it just puts me to sleep. Yeah, and he and, has like huge silences uh, yeah. I, because he kind of wants people to think. While he's talking, but his his voice is so boring. His humor is so like droll. Like he's not. He's only like mildly funny. Like he's not very funny, right. but he laughs at his own jokes very quietly. And then there's silence. And uh, but anyway, okay. Well, Jim Quick, QuickBrain.com, your podcast, your book that's going to come out next year, and we'll definitely have you on the podcast again because at the very least, we could do it entirely about how to know who you are and how to be who you are. But this has been so interesting. I'm, I really have to spend a lot of time thinking about this. I think that there's a lot to unpack in this. And, and I really appreciate you doing this podcast. First, we, we've met a couple times. We did that first podcast over Skype. First time we're doing a podcast in person. And I hope it's the, the first of many. James, So thank, thanks, Jim. Thank you. And I appreciate everyone who's listening. And I appreciate all the capes that you wear. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.